Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Tonight's presentation of Suspense. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to our very first episode of Suspense. Now, this whole summer is called uh, "Summer: Our Summer Escape into Suspense," and it's based basically on the fact that Suspense is having its 75th anniversary this summer. Now, its very first episode is actually going to be on next week. But this week, I have what's kind of considered its audition show. This was from Forecast. And Forecast was a series in 1940 that had a rotating, um, what, episodes that focused on uh, various uh, shows that they were proposing that the audience could write in letters and so forth and asked to, for them to make it into a regular series. The only show I know that made it out of there and into a regular series is Duffy's Tavern, which was a pretty huge hit. As far as suspense goes, the suspense episode is really quite good. But uh, after 1940, they kind of laid dormant for two years, and then two years later picked it up. So I wouldn't say it was uh, a high-demand show that they felt like they had to put on. Uh, in fact, I don't think it was going to be made into a series, but I think someone probably repitched it again a couple years later, and they said, let's go for it for a summer replacement series. Uh, it replaced, uh, what did it replace? Lux Radio Theater that was going off the air for a summer hiatus, and suspense came in its place, and was popular enough to be an ongoing series for the next 20 years. And for a 20-year run, it's pretty amazing. In radio, 20 years doesn't sound that long, because a lot of shows ran for a long time. But as far as dramas go, there are not a lot of them that go this long. 20 years in radio is huge, but 20 years in television was even bigger, and 20 years in television was like, oh, I can only think of two series, just Gunsmoke and Law and & Order that ran for 20 years. So for a drama, 20 years is a nice long run. Now, Suspense, this first episode uh, that was on Forecast, was uh, actually directed by Alfred Hitchcock, supposedly. I don't know if it truly was or not. Everything I read says that it was, so I, I'll, I'll say it was. Certainly the actor that comes on at the end and plays Alfred Hitchcock is not Alfred Hitchcock. You can totally tell by his voice, but who knows... Alfred Hitchcock originally made a movie called The Lodger that this is loosely the same story as. And uh, this story is basically that, that uh, a couple takes in a lodger, someone that's going to stay with them, and uh, they start thinking that maybe he could be Jack the Ripper. And so that's what this whole story is about. You'll have to see how it ends and and so forth. Now, what I've decided to bring us, I'm just 
kind of trying it out. I don't know if I'll keep this or not, but I'm going to bring you every fifth year. So it 75 years ago is the anniversary of suspense. So we're going to bring you this audition show. And then from uh, five years later, 70 years ago, we're going to bring you an episode. And from 70, uh, 65 years ago and 60 years ago and 55 years ago and 60. Anyway, let's just talk about what we're going to bring you tonight. So the second episode you're going to hear is starring Jack Benny. And it's from the 1952 season, the same time of year that we're in. And it's about Jack and a vault, and you can't go wrong with Jack and a vault, can you? So I think you'll enjoy that. The one after that, then we're going to jump uh, backwards five years and pick up from 1947. We're going to grab the episode with Hume Cronin. And Hume Cronin, you might know uh, from probably Cocoon, is what you'd know him as, Ron Howard's movie Cocoon from the 80s. But he was in a lot of movies over the years, and a lot of television shows, and a lot of radio shows. Uh, just a very prolific actor who uh, passed away here a number of years ago uh, in the 2000s. I can't remember the exact year. Uh, then we're going to bring you, um, we'll jump forward ten years from there and bring you Vincent Price in an episode about clairvoyance that... Uh, We'll also bring the episode from five years later, after that, the, in the towards the very end of the run from 1962, and that episode we're going to bring you is also about clairvoyance, but a different episode. So it's kind of interesting having all these shows. So we'll see. Let's present these five. See if you enjoy them. Uh, send me information whether you want me to keep doing it uh, with every fifth year sort of thing. Uh, if you can handle five episodes, if you want less, then tell me that. Anyway, this is Buck Benny signing off. Enjoy these wonderful episodes of Suspense, and I hope you enjoy our summer of escaping into suspense. It's 2017, if I didn't mention that before, and uh, enjoy. This is Hollywood and CBS presenting forecast number four. Herbert Marshall, directed by Alfred Hitchcock in the first program of a proposed new series entitled Suspense. Tonight's forecast program, ladies and gentlemen, represents the ideal form of collaboration. Mr. Alfred Hitchcock, brilliant English director of such outstanding motion pictures as The 39 Steps, Rebecca, and Foreign Correspondent, was eager to create a very special type of radio drama, The Suspense Story. As narrator and star for his production, he thought at once of the distinguished actor with whom he had been associated in countless British film successes, Herbert Marshall. Mr. Marshall suggested that they dramatize a certain favorite story of his, and that story happened to be the very one Mr. Hitchcock had had in mind. Mrs. Bella Clown's classic in Chills, The Lodger.
Lodger is a work of fiction which springs from recorded fact. A story which begins in the year 1888 in London. A London terrorized by the fifth in a succession of recent murders. It was believed that these deeds were the work of one person, a tall, gaunt figure in a black Inverness cape, carrying a small, narrow bag. That meager description provided by a highly unnerved witness was the sum total of all that was known of the murderer. It was enough, however, to keep alive and alert the interest of all London, of all those in fine quarters and all those in small, grimy houses, as, for example, Ellen Bunting. Ellen was no different from all the other middle-aged housewives dwelling in the great city's squalid Whitechapel district. She knew all the known facts of the case. As Herbert Marshall will tell you, Ellen knew it was quite proper to refer to this wielder of the knife as... The Avenger. Of course, Ellen Bunting was far more concerned with her personal problems than with thoughts of the Avenger. Yet the case of that strange, elusive killer quite often forced all other matters from her mind. There was that mad, meaningless scheme he seemed to follow. All his victims, for example, had been women. All had been young, attractive, and, oddly enough, blonde. But Ellen could no more understand the motive for his brutal slashings than could the police. This night, she and her husband, Robert Bunting, sat before their fireplace reading the newspaper account of the latest murder. The Avenger had struck again. As Ellen expressed it, he might be anybody. He might be the fellow you pass on the street. It's a terrible thought. Yes. If only the police had something to go on. It looks like that Avenger's just too quick for him. Look, it says here that this girl he got last night was like all the others. Hmm. Pretty, blonde, and, uh, let's see, described by her friends as a very light-hearted girl. What a pity. Did you ever stop to think who fits that to a T? In fact, fits all those girls? Why? Well, my own Daisy. Oh, that's a horrible thought. Well, maybe it's a good thing she's with her aunt, then, instead of here. Mm. London ain't a safe place for any girl right now. Ah, just the same. I can't help thinking how fine it'll be to have her back in. Now, Bunting, you know that Daisy seems just as much my own daughter as she is yours. Mm. But I'm telling you, there's no sense even thinking about having her back right now. We just can't afford it. Oh, I know that, Ellen. Only, well, well, maybe we could manage it some way. How? Haven't I scrimped myself half crazy trying to keep us going? But you don't care about that, do you? No, your daisy's more important to you than I am. No, 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 Ellen, Ellen, that don't sound like you. Oh, I can't help if it don't. What are we going to do? Tell me that. We'll get along, dear. Something will turn up. Oh, we haven't had a lodger for months. Nobody even comes to look at the room anymore. Yes, but things will work out, Ellen. Oh, they ain't never going to work out. So we won't even have a roof over our heads and... Oh, Oh, I'm sorry, Robbie, I... I didn't mean to take on so... Oh, I know, dear, I know. It's all right. Oh, I, I didn't think it. It's just that I, I've been so worried. Well, don't you go worrying another second, old girl. Why, first thing you know, you won't be pretty anymore. You'll have your face all wrinkled now, and you'll... see Now, here, come on, now, let's see a smile. Come on, just have one oh, smile. Oh, leave me, me alone. Just one I smile like you used to, eh? Well, who do you suppose that could be? Oh, for late for visitors, I... Bunting. Do you think it could be somebody looking for rooms? Well, it might be. You want me to go to the door? No, I'll go. Oh. You just stay here. Yes, all right. Now, be sure you get a good look at Louise before you let him in, dear. Oh, I'm coming. Oh, I do hope it's... <clears throat> yes, sir? Is it not true that you let lodgings? 
Yes, sir. Uh, won't you come in, sir? Thank you. Uh, could I, uh, could I take your cape, sir? There's no need. No, I, um, I'm looking for a quiet room. It must be quiet. Oh, we have that, sir. Above all, our, our house is quiet. Uh, your bag, sir, may I take it? No, I'll hold it. If you'll be so good as to show me the room, please. Oh, yes, yes, sir. It's right up these stairs, sir. Uh, this way. Thank you. Uh, you see, sir, uh, there's just my husband and me here, and we're ever so quiet, and... And I'm sure you'll find this room to your liking, sir. Here we are. Now I'll, I'll just light the gas. There. Mm-hmm. Very good. It is pleasant, isn't it, sir? And, and there's not many rooms with such pretty pictures. Are there now? We've had them in the family for years, sir. And... Pictures interest me very little. You see, what really impresses me about the room is the very simplicity of it, the... Um... The bareness. Uh, yes, sir. It's not at all crowded, is it? It will be quite suitable, Mrs... Um, uh, Bunting, Mrs. Sir. Bunting. You see, I could do a great deal of studying in my book here. The Holy Bible. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, please, sir, uh, let me help with your luggage. No, don't I... touch it. Oh, but I, I only wish to... Oh, you only wish to help, of course. You must forgive me, Mrs. Uh, Bunting. It's just that I... I'm so very weary. Of course, sir. He bringeth them to their desired haven. Beautiful words, Mrs. Bunting. Indeed they are, sir. And now at last I have found my haven of rest. Yes, sir. Then then you'll be taking the room. Let us see. Now, uh, what are you going to charge me? With attendance, mind. I shall be staying in most of the time and I shall be wanting meals. Oh, we can see to that, sir. Then does um, 30 shillings a week suit you? 30? Uh, why, why, yes, sir. Yes, sir, that will be quite all right. Good, and I shall pay you in advance. My name is Sleuth. Mrs. Bunting? Mr. Sleuth. S-L-E-U-T-H. Think of a hound, Mrs. Bunting, and you'll never forget my name. Twenty-three, four, thirty, thirty shillings. Thank you, sir. And I think I should enjoy a little light supper now, Mrs. Bunting. Bread and butter, perhaps. Could you arrange that? Oh, certainly, sir. I I'll do that now. And uh, if you'd be requiring any beer or spirits... Certainly or... not. Oh, sir... What, what did I say? I thought you understood me, Mrs. Bunting, and I had hoped that you and your husband were abstainers. But we are, sir. We don't keep nothing about. I would have had to go out and... Of course, of course. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Bunting. I fear I spoke sharply. I don't wish you to think me rude. After all, you, you've been so kind. Consider it. I hope I know a gentleman when I see one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I'll just hurry with your supper. Take the room. No, don't bother me now. I have to get him some supper. What did you mean? Come to the kitchen where he won't hear us. He took it, Ellen? Yes, He took the room? Yes. We're all right now. Look. 30 shillings. A week in advance. Oh, it's wonderful. Wonderful. And Ellen, do you see what this means? Yes, you can have Daisy now. Yes. Uh, here, Bunting, warm that teapot and put some tea leaves in right it. Right-o, right-o. Yeah, do you know something, old girl? We're not going to worry too much about Daisy being in danger of that Avenger fella. Whatever do you mean, Robbie? Well, she's not a girl who takes a drink, you know. Um, what's that to do with it, please? Oh, something I read in the paper while he was upstairs with the gentleman. They just found out that every one of the Avenger's victims had been drinking. They figured he must be some kind of a rabid abstainer. What a peculiar chap. Now hurry, Bunting, please. Yeah. Two thoughts. Two thoughts only governed Ellen's mind. The lodger's light supper and her own good fortune at having such a lodger. Mr. Sleuth was an eccentric sort, but then he was such a gentleman, so quiet, so very religiously inclined. She 
She started up a staircase to Mr. Sleuth's room. Her husband at her side. It won't be a while to be safe, though, once Blaze is back in London, eh? We'll see if she stays closer than the earth. Hmm? Well, I'll be downstairs. Hurry up with this supper, old girl. She has cast down many wounded from her. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Come in. And to know the wickedness of folly. Why, Mr. S- yes? What is it? Those pictures. Those pretty girls. You've turned all their faces to the wall. And that maneuver, that strange action, was the beginning of Ellen's concern. Soon there came to her a recollection of the black Inverness cape, the small narrow bag, the urgent matter of alcoholic drink. And these details began to shape themselves into a pattern which grew more disturbing with each passing hour. The day following, the lodger did not leave the upstairs room once, nor did he leave the next day. And the oddness of this took its place in the pattern. Then, too, the approaching arrival of Daisy, her stepdaughter, added to her concern. On the second night, her sleep was restless with vague, horrifying images. And so, when she heard the first stealthy footsteps outside her bedroom, she was instantly awake. Tensely, she followed those steps down the stairs, down the hallway. She heard the front door open and then click shut. Utter stillness fell upon the house. And outside, the streets were so silent she could hear distinctly the clock from a church tower a mile away told the hour. In her troubled frenzy, she pictured a lone figure plodding through the deep fog, moving quietly, stealthily, stalking, searching, finding. When, soon after she heard the lodger return, she sought to quiet the horrible dread which had possessed her. She assured herself that Daisy's arrival that day was no cause for alarm. Now she reasoned, how could there be anything really evil about so religious a gentleman as Mr. Sleuth? But for her there was no more sleep, merely a tormented state of half-consciousness, a state which suddenly dropped from her shortly after daybreak. Horrible murder. That was the piercing scream of a newsboy far down the street. Ellen Bunting heard the boy cry out the Avengers' latest stroke, made during the night. first glimpse that morning of the grey-faced lodger brought the steepest night's warm terror full to the surface. But on the next instant, she saw the pitiable, helpless weariness in his eyes, and curiously the terror began to pass. She found that she was hoping desperately that her fears were unfounded. Earlier, she had determined to tell Bunting of the awful convictions in her mind. Now, however, she felt she must be certain, certain before she spoke to a soul. She knew there was one thing she must examine. That was the lodger's single piece of luggage. She'd thought of it often. What could it hold? 
Not much in the way of clothing, surely. It was too small, too, too narrow. It was more like a case. A case for a knife. It was along toward noon that Evan found her opportunity to search the lodger's room. Soon after Bunting left to meet Daisy, Mr. Sleuth himself walked from the house. Ellen watched the tall, thin figure in the black Inverness cape disappear down the street, and then she rushed upstairs into the room. Quickly, she moved to the closet. It was no different from what it had always been, utterly empty. She found nothing under the bed. She went then to the chest of drawers against the wall. She opened the top drawer and found inside nothing but a frayed shirt, two handkerchiefs, the next drawer under clothes, socks. The next empty. There remained then only one possible place for the small, narrow bag, the bottom drawer, and it was locked. Tugging at the drawer, she heard suddenly the opening of the front door downstairs. Panic-stricken, she rushed out of the room and down the hall to the head of the stairs. Upstairs, Ellen. Ellen, Daisy's here. Oh, Mother Ellen, it's so good to see you. Oh, whatever's the matter? Yes, you've gone quite white. Oh, well, I, I'm all right. I, I wasn't expecting you so soon. Oh, you don't know how fine it is to be back, Mother Ellen. Oh, the country's all right in its way, but there's nothing like London now, is there? No, no, there isn't. But as long as that adventure's about, I can see we're going to have to do something about these blonde locks, eh, Ellen? Oh, don't worry about that. I'll dye them, maybe, or, or just pin them under my hat. <laughs> <laughs> Daisy, I, I might as well get you settled. Oh, now, Father, isn't that just like her? She's straight to the point, and no fuss. Well, I'll bet a sixpence you'll have a dust cloth in your hand before you've got your coat off. <laughs> 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 Mr. Sleuth... Mrs. Bunting, I see my door is open. Oh, we, we were just leaving, so we... Does this mean that all of you have been in my room? Oh, not at all, sir. I... What must I do? Keep it locked? But you see, sir, I was just tidying up a bit, and, and Mr. Bunting, he brought his daughter up, sir. She, she just arrived. This is Daisy, sir. Pleased to meet you, sir. She's, she, she's been away for quite a long while, you see, Mr. Sleuth, and that's, that, that's, that's why we're a bit excited, you might Yes, you must have been surprised when you came in, hearing us laughing and carrying on that way. Yes. Yes, I must say I was. However, Miss uh, Daisy, there are all types of joy, are there not? Yes, I'm sure there are. The despicable evil joy of the abandoned and the divine happiness of the blessed. A vast difference, that. You do understand me, don't you? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Sleuth. I devoutly hope so, Miss Daisy. Nowadays, there are so very few young women like yourself who do. In fact, I, I all but despaired ever of finding one. If... If you'll excuse us now, sir, we'll, we'll be getting Daisy's things put away. Of course, Mrs. Bunting, and I must be getting to my room. Believe me, Miss Daisy, it's been a revelation to meet you. Oh, thank you, sir. I'm sure we shall have much to discuss. <laughs> He's a queer one, all right. But such a gentleman, isn't he? At that moment... Ellen had been determined to pour out her terrible knowledge, and then the moment passed by. She told herself that perhaps the past few days had been nothing more than a grim illusion, a tormenting play of imagination. She would wait then until she had attended the coroner's inquest into the last Avenger murder. There, perhaps, she could hear evidence to disprove all her fears, to assure her there was no earthly harm in Daisy being so near the lodger. This was her gravest concern now, for on the next day, Mr. Sleuth made it a point to see the girl more than once, and fearfully... Ellen saw that Daisy welcomed his visits. As Ellen was preparing to step out to the inquest, she heard once more the voices of her stepdaughter and the lodger coming to her through the kitchen door. She hesitated before entering. <laughs> Tense. Strangely apprehensive. I do believe, Mrs. Luke, I've never known a gentleman with such funny ideas. 
Oh, Mother Ellen, you should hear what Mr. Sleuth is just saying. Perhaps, Daisy, you would excuse yourself. And... <laughs> he thinks people, and especially girls, should spend all their time praying. I sought to explain, Mrs. Bunting, that all women are placed on this earth filled with evil. They therefore must struggle constantly to find the paths of righteousness. Why, Mr. Sleuth, you mean a girl's not to enjoy life at all? Not to have fun? Frivolity, my child, is the devil's breeding ground. And all his implements are there. Temptation, pleasure, wine. Oh, that's crazy. Well, there's nothing I like better than a glass of wine. And I'm not... You drink. She didn't know what she was saying, Mrs. Luth. Just a child. And Daisy, you'd better go now. But I didn't say nothing wrong. What's the harm in a glass of wine? She lieth in wait as for a prey. And increaseth the transgressors among men. I don't know what you mean. I never heard such nonsense. You call Holy Scripture nonsense? So what I prayed against is true. You are beyond salvation. That's not so. I'm a good girl, I am, and I won't have you saying that. Daddy, Daddy, go into the front room. It's quite all right, Mrs. Bunting. I must be going upstairs anyway. I'm used to being misunderstood, you know. People never realize that my efforts are simply for the greater good of humanity. Of course, sir. And that the power on high will direct my hand toward the expulsion of all evil. Daisy. Daisy, listen to me. Yes? I've got to tell you about... About... About what, Mother Ellen? Nothing. I've got to go out for a while now. I'll be back. The moment to reveal the secret horror had come again and passed. Ellen's sudden recollection of Mr. Sleuth as he stood in the doorway had overwhelmed her. She must give him this last chance, this last frantic search for this proving evidence, this trip to the inquest. If that chance should fail, then she would tell Bunting or the police. So with the knowledge that Bunting was left in the house to look after Daisy, she boarded the underground train bound for the coroner's court. But as the train pulled away from the station, a new torture came to her, began to mount in her mind. It was the sudden realization that provided Sleuth was the murderer, she was equally responsible for his crimes. She had been giving him protection. If anything should happen to Daisy, she would be equally guilty. Fully as guilty as the Avenger. seated at the rear of the small but crowded inquest room, listened to each of the witnesses as they were called. And from one of them, she found the first hope she had known for many days. This witness lived next to the alley in which the Avenger had committed his crime that night. She had seen him from a window, and the man she described in no way resembled Ellen's lodger. But in another moment, Ellen's hope was swept away. It was pointed out that the fog had been so heavy that night that the witness could not possibly have seen the murderer from her window. She left the stand, replaced by a Mr cannot. This elderly gentleman was certain that he had not only seen, but talked with the Avenger. It was in Regent's Park, he testified, only a few moments before... A few moments before the murder, Mr. Coroner, when I saw him, he was quite a tall man, very gaunt-looking, and carrying a handbag. 
A handbag, you say? Yes, a small, narrow one. Just such a bag, I might add, as might contain a knife. As Ellen heard these words, the tension which had been mounting up within her became almost unbearable. Rigid with horror, she gripped the arms of her chair. She heard the coroner... I shall have to ask for more order in the court. And now, Mr. Kenneth, I understand you heard this man speak. Oh, yes. He had a rather high, hesitating voice. An educated man, I would judge, but quite mad. What do you mean by that? Well, as he emerged from the fog, he was talking aloud to himself. Believe me, sir, he was reciting scriptures from the Bible. Scriptures from the Bible. Horrified, Ellen rose from her seat, only half hearing the confusion about her. Are you asking us to believe? I would say, Mr. Cannot, that the man we are looking for would be least of all a religious man. And that's where you're in error, Mr. Coroner. The religious note is the very key to the case. Very interesting. That'll be all, Mr. Cannot. Just a moment, sir. Don't you understand? The man you're after must be a religious maniac. That's the only explanation possible. You will please stand down. Court was dismissing the very truth. Ellen knew that now. She could no longer keep silent. Her hand shot forth and she screamed. I, I want to say... Ellen Bunting, on the verge of speaking, had fainted. And then, when she was revived a few moments later, she said nothing. Her brain was in too great a turmoil. Her nerves too shocked. Like one in a dream, she allowed herself to be led from the courtroom. The voices of spectators were only vague sounds to her. I thought she was going to say something. Yes, it was hysterics, eh? Yeah, that bit about the knife. Yeah, yeah. The, the knife. knife. The, the knife. knife. The knife. As Ellen Bunting proceeded home with the remarks from the spectators remained in her mind, she heard them over and hysterics, over. Eh? Yeah, that bit about the knife. The knife. Just such a bag as might contain that knife. That knife. We'll see she stays closer than the house, eh? No harm in being safe. Direct my hand toward the expulsion of all evil. Expulsion of all evil. What's the harm in a glass of wine? I didn't say nothing more. As Ellen neared her neighborhood, her dread increased. With each moving footstep, the grip of terror grew tighter, tighter about her. She moved faster, faster. If only she were in time. She was two streets away from the house. Then one. Then... Then she saw Bunting. Sharply, like the thrust of a knife, she realized what this meant. Daisy was left alone with the lodger. Oh, Bunting, tell me, Bunting. Where's Daisy? Where is she? I say, where? Why, at home. Oh, listen to me. Try to understand. Sleuth is the Avenger. What are you saying? Oh, Lodger. He's the Avenger, Bunting. Oh, but there's no time for that. Daisy's in danger. Hurry. Hurry. Yes. Daisy. (laughs) Daisy. You try the sitting room. Daisy! Daisy! Where are you, Daisy? Answer me, Daisy! Oh. Inside the bedroom. Jeez, she's not here. What about the dining room? I've looked. She's not there. She's not downstairs. Then there's just his room. Go on. Open the door.
say, Cop, what's the idea, Hitch? I have a few more lines to do. As Mr. Marshall, the narrator, you have. Not as Mr. Sleuth, the but lodger. Hitch, you can't stop the play right here. It isn't fair, you know. Why isn't it, Bob? What more is there to say? But Mr. Hitchcock, won't people want to know what Bunting and me found in the room? All right, Ellen. What precisely did you find? Well, uh, nothing, sir. There. You see? Nothing. No lodger, no Bible. And that locked dresser drawer. What about that? We unlocked it, sir. And what was in it? Nothing, sir. You are certain, Mrs. Bunting? Oh, 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 you gave me quite a turn, Mr. Slew. I mean, Mr. Marshall. Uh, yes, sir, I'm sure, sir. There was nothing. Well, begging your pardon, Mr. Hitchcock, but don't you think we'd better just mention about Daisy? I don't know, Bunting. What do you think we ought to say? Oh, just that the reason she wasn't in the house when Ellen and me got there was... Well, she'd gone out for a walk, that's all. Did she enjoy it? Oh, very much, sir. Made it to King's Cross and back in just under an hour, sir. Splendid time, Bunting. Well, there you are, Bob. There's the story. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Hitchcock. You can't do that. That's not the story. Of course it's not. Now, look here, Hitch. Here's the fellow who composed and conducted all our music, Wilbur Hatch. He wants to know about this, too. Everybody does. All right, Bob. What is it they want to know? What became of Mr. Sleuth? Oh, him. Why, he left that afternoon. They never saw him again. And now I think we ought to say something about the Columbia forecast Mr. show for... Mr. will you please... Stop him, uh... Mr. Marshall. Hitch, listen to me. Yes? What is it? They want to know when the Avenger finally was caught. Oh, well, let me ask you something, Bart. Are you acquainted with Loretta Young? Yes, what's that got to do with it? Well, in next week's Columbia preview series, Miss Young will take the starring role in the drama of an American Red Cross nurse. That's good news, isn't it? Oh, that's great. But now listen, Hitch... You've just got to tell that audience exactly when and how Mr. Sleuth was caught. Caught? Why on earth should he be caught? Why? Well, he was the Avenger, wasn't he? Was he? Your guess, gentle listener, is as good as ours. Even Mrs. Bella Glanz, who wrote the novel, isn't entirely sure. For his masterful direction, our thanks to Alfred Hitchcock, whose latest pictures are David O. Selznick's Rebecca and Walter Wanger's Foreign Correspondent. For his superb characterization of Mr. Sleuth, our thanks to Herbert Marshall. And our thanks to the outstanding British character actor who tonight portrayed the role of Bunting, Edmund Gwen. If you liked tonight's program and want to hear more in the same highly original Hitchcock vein, radio versions of The Lady Vanishes and The 39 Steps, for example, write to CBS and tell us so. Your interest will help bring suspense to the air as a weekly feature. Forecast next week presents from Hollywood, Loretta Young in Angel, first of a proposed series based on the adventures and the romance of a typical Red Cross nurse. From New York, a new sort of comedy show, Ed Gardner as Archie in Duffy's Tavern, with Gertrude Neeson, Colonel Stoopnagel, Larry Adler, and John Kirby's orchestra. Don't miss Forecast at this hour next week. Thomas Freedance was speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Well, again, this is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Suspense. Tonight's episode features Jack Benny. Um, some of you may know him from my podcast. <laughs> and he'll be on Suspense tonight. He appeared on four different Suspense episodes over the years. This would be his second appearance out of the four. And it's interesting when they take place. Um, certainly be, this being the second out of the four from 60 years ago uh, this week means that it was from 1962. And so while Jack was doing his radio show and his um, regular uh, his radio show and his television show, then he also somehow fit in these suspense episodes that he was on. I have a feeling it probably has something to do with the fact that Elliot Lewis is the producer and director and sometimes writer, and they've been friends for uh, quite a while, at least acquaintances, on the Jack Benny show. Uh, So when uh, Elliot Lewis takes over Suspense, he starts having Jack make yearly appearances on Suspense kind of curious why he didn't have Phil Harris on more. He had Phyllis Harris on one time, but you would think he would have uh, yearly Phil Harris um, episodes as well. But anyway, uh, enjoy this uh, rare appearance of Jack Benny in suspense. Um, I said last week that I was going to bring you uh, the Jack Parr show tonight. But I decided to wait a week since this suspense show happened to be uh, available and it was a good time to share it. So we'll be bringing Jack Parr uh, probably next Tuesday, but we shall see. So anyway, enjoy and we'll see you next time. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Jack Benny in tonight's presentation of... Suspense. Tonight, Autolite presents a story about a man who worked for 30 years to prepare a most unique personal retirement plan. The story is called A Good and Faithful Servant. Our star, Mr. Jack Benny. The legislative luminary. How are you, Senator? My car is giving me trouble, Harlow. Your car? What's wrong with it, Senator? Well, it gets going slower than a loser leaving office. It rides rougher than a tax debate and uses more gas than a three-day filibuster. (laughs) Well, it may be spark plug trouble, Senator. Spark plugs should be checked every three to 4,000 miles. So see your nearest Autolite spark plug dealer. His exclusive Autolite plug check indicator will quickly show the exact condition of your spark plugs. If they're worn out or wrong for your style of driving, he'll recommend resistor or standard type ignition engineered Autolite spark plugs for smoother performance, quick starts, and gas savings. Sounds like a propitious proposal, Harlow. How do I find this Autolite spark plug dealer? Why, just phone Western Union by number and ask for operator 25. She'll quickly tell you the name of your nearest Autolite spark plug dealer where you can get the finest spark plug service money can buy. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. 
And now, with the performance of Mr. Jack Benny, Autolife presents transcribed, A Good and Faithful Servant, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. I know you've been through a lot, Mr. Fenton, but if you could just try to recall anything else about the appearance of the two... Uh, Lieutenant, couldn't this wait? Fenton has spent 14 horrible hours locked in a vault. And while I admire his spirit and pluck in bearing up as well as he has... I'm just trying to get something to go on, Mr. Waterman. Do, do you want your money back or don't you? The welfare of my employees comes first, Lieutenant. First, last, and always. And you're insured. Uh, Mr. Fenton... Uh, don't answer if you don't feel up to it, Fenton. I don't mind, Mr. Waterman. I'm anxious to cooperate. Now, as near as I can remember... Uh, be sure you get this, Florence. As near as I can remember... Of course, I had only a flash before they forced me into the vault. Yeah, we understand, Mr. Fenton. I had the impression of one being tall, but not too tall, and the other one was shorter. But not too short. Exactly. And they were wearing masks, rubber masks. Uh, one had a Lionel Barrymore mask, and I think the other was Dick Tracy. It was quite a shock to see him. Aha. Uh -huh. The Brinks Gang, Lieutenant. The Brinks Gang to a T. Maybe. Uh, Mr. Cartwright, would you come over here, please? Mr. Cartwright, uh, is it the practice to keep large sums of cash on hand overnight at the store? Well, yes, the store does a tremendous cash business, Lieutenant. Tremendous. And yesterday was dollar day. Uh, thank you. Mr. Cartwright, how did it happen that Fenton was alone in the cash room when the bandits entered? Did he customarily close the vault for the night? Well, not customarily, No. When I'm unavoidably called away from the well, store... Well, does this happen often? Well, uh... Very seldom, Lieutenant. Very seldom. But it happened yesterday. And two men walked in, put you in the vault, and walked out with a big hunk of money. At precisely 556. Uh, Mr. Cartwright opened the vault this morning at 802. Correct, Lieutenant. We won't know how much they got until I can make an audit. And if there's any question, Lieutenant, of corroborating Fenton's story, I need only to say that he's been with Waterman's for 30 years, a good and faithful servant. Uh, more exactly, Mr. Waterman, 29 years, 11 months, and 29 days. I was due to retire tomorrow before this unfortunate circumstance arose. Oh, and, uh, nonsense, Fenton. You'll retire tomorrow. And if there's any question, Lieutenant, of Fenton's character, his honesty, his devotion... Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, you can go home, Mr. Fenton. Better get some rest. If you want to duck the reporters, go out this back way. Well, uh, what do you think, Mr. Waterman? Entirely up to you, my boy. Entirely. But in these days of doubt and confusion and dishonesty in high places, I believe your simple story of courage and devotion to duty will be an inspiration everywhere. Mr. Waterman, I am ready to face the press. They were all very nice to me. The reporters, the police, Mr. Cartwright, and especially Mr. Waterman. All that money missing. Fifty thousand. Yet his only concern was for me. I thought that if I could afford it, I'd like to buy him some little token of gratitude. Then I thought again. In my desk at the office, there was a secret compartment, and in that compartment was $50,000. I guess I could afford it. Yoo-hoo! Mother, I'm home. Good morning, Harold. I hope you haven't had breakfast. I've kept it hot for you. You're not going to ask me how it went, Mother? Oh, I heard over the radio. 
But I wish there'd been some way of doing it that it wouldn't have kept you out all night. Oh, I wasn't out all night, Mother. I was in a vault. I know you were, Harold. And if you keep on, you're going to end up with that same sinus strip your father used to have. Oh, Mother, it was a perfectly dry, warm... Oh, never mind. Eat your cereal, Harold. You'll feel better. Uh, Mr. Waterman told me to take the day off, Mother. I'm not going in until tomorrow. Hmm. That was certainly big of him, after all you've done for them. How much did you get? 50000 It's in my desk at the office, in the drawer with the false bottom. In your desk? Will it be safe there, Harold? Well, no one will be looking for it. Harold, you don't think you'll have any trouble getting the money out of your desk? I think things will work out all right. See, according to my plan, it, uh... It, uh... <laughs> Harold, you see, I told you from the beginning you weren't strong enough for this type of thing. Next morning at 8.43, I punched in at the store. Figuring 308 working days a year, that made 9,240 punches. It was a little strange to think of this being my last. I walked through the store to the elevator, past lingerie, ladies' gloves, and perfume, the way I always went. But this morning was different. People looked up when I passed. They spoke to me. They knew who I was. Even the brunette in perfume smiled at me. I almost stopped, but I couldn't think of anything to say. In the elevator, one of the girls asked me how I felt. Still scared, I said, and they laughed. They wouldn't have laughed any harder for Mr. Waterman. I got out at eight, my floor, and as I went into my office, Miss Prentice, Mr. Cartwright's secretary, looked at me. Twenty-three months and two days she'd been looking at the top of my head, but this morning she looked at me. And she smiled. I guess I smiled back. Good morning, Mr. Fenton. Good morning, Miss Prentice. It wasn't much, but I felt it could have been a start. I was almost sorry this was my last day. Fenton. Fenton, did you hear me? Yes, Mr. Cartwright. I heard you, Mr. Cartwright. All right. A big workload piled up yesterday when you took off, and we haven't anyone new coming in till tomorrow. Not that I want to overload you on your last day. An but... honest day's work for an honest day's pay, Mr. Cartwright. Oh, good. I'm still trying to find out how much was taken in the holdup, so you're on your own. I think I can tell you almost to the penny, Mr. Cartwright. I'll make my own check. And how about the work I... Oh, good morning, Mr. Waterman. I was just, uh... Well, Fenton, back at the old desk, eh? Huh? Well, I just didn't feel right away from it, Mr. Waterman. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a surprise for you this afternoon, Fenton. Going to make a little ceremony out of your retirement. A, uh, a ceremony? Good for store morale. Right, Cartwright? Oh, absolutely, Mr. Waterman, absolutely. And about that request of yours you made last week, Fenton, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we can swing it. Oh, you're too kind, Mr. Waterman. Oh, my boy, when you work for Waterman's 30 years, you've got something coming to you. No. Really? I ate my usual lunch that day, the Thursday Blue Plate Special at Elmo's Grotto. 70 cents plus the usual 10% tip. Seven cents. With the usual 20 minutes left in my lunch hour, I headed for the park with a nickel bag of peanuts. The squirrels were going to miss me. No, no, Mr. Waterman. You've had three already. Give Mr. Cartwright a chance. Sit up, Mr. Cartwright. Sit. That's it. 
That's it. Uh, excuse me. Would you mind if I join you, Mr. Fenton? Why, Miss Prentice? Of course. I mean, of course not. Sit down. Sit down. Uh, thank you. Uh, move over, Mr. Waterman. He does look a little pompous, doesn't he? Which one is Mr. Cartwright? There, with the small mustache. He bites. And um, is there a Miss Prentice? Well, there is, but I believe she is, well... Nesting? Well. <laughs> How long have you been feeding them, Mr. Fenton? They seem so friendly. Thirty years, Miss Prentice. My favorite animal. You give a squirrel a nut and does he eat it? No. He runs away and stores it in a hole. We could all benefit from their example. And now that you've stored your little nest egg, you're retiring, Mr. Fenton. Well, you might say that, yes. Uh, you're quite a fascinating character, Mr. Fenton. Me? Mm. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't know you sooner. You know, the whole store is talking about your ordeal in that vault. Oh, it wasn't so bad. In fact, I've always rather liked the vault. What an odd thing to say. Well, chacun est so goût, Miss Prentice. That's French for each to his own taste. <laughs> uh, oh, you've been abroad, Mr. Fenton. Me? Oh, my goodness, no. Oh, but you will now that you're retiring. No, no, I've got my eye on a little cottage by a lake and woods. Lots of squirrels there. And no time clocks. You and your wife? Mother. Oh, I hope you get it, Mr. Fenton. Thank you, Miss Prentice. I wonder what the robbers are going to do with all that money. I wonder. Mm, five to one. Shall we go back and punch in, Miss Prentice? She let me walk all the way back to the store with her. And in the elevator, Mr. Bixler, sporting goods, winked at me. Funny, for ten years I'd had the feeling Mr. Bixler didn't like me. There was quite a gathering in the cashier's office when we arrived. All the executives for Mr. Waterman's down and the editor of the store paper wandering through Waterman's. I'd sent uh, an item to him last summer. Mr. Fenton of cashier's department spending his two-week vacation at home. But he never printed it. Well, come in, come in, Fenton. We've been waiting for our, uh, shall we say, a guest of honor. Me, Mr. Waterman? You, Fenton. Uh, we have a little ceremony which I hope to conclude before the lunch hour is over. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Waterman. Think nothing of it. This is your day, Fenton. Your day. Oh, going to get a shot of the two of us, Wolf? Yes, sir, Mr. Waterman. Uh, over by the door. Oh, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like it sitting at my desk. I feel more, uh, well, secure there. By your desk. Ah, how's this? Got it? Good, good. And now, Fenton... We all say farewell to a good and faithful servant, one who has given 30 years of his life as a contribution, however small, to making Waterman's the great institution it is today. Well done, Harold Fenton. Thank you. A modest man, but conscientious. His regular comings and goings passed almost unknown to many until his ordeal of two days ago, locked all night in the vault by brutal and rapacious thieves, a night in which, in his own words, he relived each and every day of his 30-year service to Waterman's. Oh, greater devotion hath no man. Oh, it was nothing, really. And now, his labor's done, his burden borne, Fenton will live out the rest of his days in ease and comfort, 
because he has arrived at the retirement age of the Waterman pension plan, by which he will receive... uh, uh, $31.68 a month. uh, $31.68 a month for as long as he lives. Thank you. And now, uh, a little surprise for Harold Fenton. A week ago, in a letter to me, our good and faithful servant asked that on his retirement he be given permission to purchase for his home his old desk. Actually, Mr. Waterman, I I don't know what I'd do without it. Oh, frankly, I put in a lot of thought on this simple request. Hmm? I weighed the factors in my mind. On the one hand was Fenton's 30-year service. On the other... Mr. Waterman. On the other, he was already receiving his pension of, uh, well, his pension. However... Please, uh, Mr. Waterman. However, Fenton, my boy, I decided to go you one better. One better? Not a new desk. Nothing so unsentimental. Fenton, instead of allowing you to purchase the desk, I'm giving it to you. Phew. All right, boys, right in here. Take the desk wherever Fenton here wants it. Now, back to work, everybody. Month-end clearance today. Whoops. Easy, men. Don't drop it. Easy. Fenton, my boy, in the years ahead, when you're seated at your old desk, think of us, won't you? I certainly will, Mr. Waterman. I certainly will. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Jack Benny in A Good and Faithful Servant. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Well, Senator, did you take my advice? Why, yes, Carlo. My Autolite spark plug dealer turned my worn spark plugs out of office and elected a set of ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs. A wise move, Senator. Those Autolite spark plugs are designed by the same Autolite engineers who designed the coil, distributor, generator, and all the other important parts of the complete ignition system used as original equipment on many leading makes of our finest cars, trucks, and tractors. They're world-famous for quality... And performance. And my Autolite spark plug dealer nominated Autolite resistor spark plugs for my car, Harlow. Ah, you're on top now, Senator, because Autolite resistor spark plugs represent one of the greatest advancements in spark plugs for automotive use in the past 20 years. They offer proven advantages such as double life, gas savings, and smoother performance. And they're specified as original equipment on many leading makes of our finest cars. What's more, the Autolite resistor spark plug is just one of a complete line of ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs for every use. So, fellow citizens, be sure, vote for Autolite. (laughs) Right, Senator. Friends, take a tip from me and see your dearest Autolite spark plug dealer this week. And remember, from bumper to taillight, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage... Mr. Jack Benny in Elliot Lewis's production of A Good and Faithful Servant. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Retirement agreed with me. I walked to the park to see my friends when I felt like it. 
leisurely lunch at Elmo's Grotto when I felt like it. And with Anita Rose, a little gardening. Mother and I were very happy. You've done enough for one morning, Harold. Your back will go out again. All through, Mother. Just cleaning off the spade. What were you planting this morning, Harold? Mother, if anything should happen to me, knock wood. Knock wood? Right in between the beets and the radishes, there's a very rich patch of dirt. Sir, aren't we going to get our little cottage by the lake? I have to go in town today, Mother. I might just inquire around. Oh, good. You know, Mr. Waterman is really a very sweet man. The Waterman pension plan. I just wish I could tell him how happy it's made me. I hadn't told Mother, but Miss Prentice had called that morning. Mr. Cartwright wanted to see me that afternoon at the office, she said. And she asked how I was. What would have happened if I'd asked her to lunch? I almost did, too. In the cashier's office at the store, Miss Prentice smiled when she saw me, and I smiled back. In fact, we struck up quite a conversation. Oh, Mr. Fenton, how are you? Fine. Just fine, Miss Prentice. <laughs> Retirement agree with you? Yes, yes, indeed. Fine. You notice we haven't filled your old job. No? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Haven't been able to find another man of your type. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. Well. Is that you, Fenton? Come on in here. Coming. Coming, Mr. Cartwright. Sit down, Fenton. Sit down. Thank you. Just trying to clean up accounts on the robbery. Fenton, what was your final tally again? Uh, 50000 almost exactly, Mr. Cartwright. You're way off. That doesn't check with my audit at all. I'm quite sure of my figures. Well, then you're wrong, that's all. My check shows they got away with 82000 82000 Right. Now, if you'll just sign the necessary statements corroborating my order... I can't do that, Mr. Cartwright. And just why can't you? Don't you take my word for it? Frankly, no. Fenton, look. You're retired. It's nothing to you one way or the other. You just made a little mistake in your figures, that's all. Mr. Cartwright, are you asking me to help cover up a shortage in your accounts? All right, Fenton, I'll lay it on the line. Temporarily, I'm a bit short. Involvement with a woman and... Uh, you wouldn't understand. I most certainly wouldn't. Look, I'll make it worth your while. Shortages I found out sooner or later, Mr. Cartwright. All right, if that's your attitude, let me tell you something, Fenton. I don't like the smell of this robbery of yours. I don't like it at all. What do you think of that? You're implying that I made off with $50,000 belonging to Waterman's? I think it's highly possible. And how are you so sure it was 50000 Supposing me, for one instant, capable of such a thing, Mr. Cartwright. Wouldn't I be much too clever to put my head in a noose by covering up for you? Fenton, if I was talking to an honest man, wouldn't he have taken my story right to Mr. Waterman? Hmm. I'll give you five minutes. Either sign my audit or I go to the police and accuse you of stealing $82,000. Think it over, Fenton. No question about it, Mr. Cartwright's dishonesty might be a bit awkward for me. My instinct about the man had been thoroughly sound. I had disliked him for 16 years. Well, there was only one safe way out of it. Well? Mr. Cartwright, if you need money... Yes? 
Why don't you rob the vault? Actually, it isn't hard at all. Well, how did you... How do I get away with the money? I'm sorry. I never reveal professional secrets. Well, then you'll have to help me, Fenton. Lock me in the vault and you get away with the money. Me? Sure. Then we're both in the clear for good. Help me out, Fenton. You mean I'm going to clear out the vault a second time? You'll never regret it. Regret it? <laughs> the fact is, I, I'd rather enjoy it. We settled on the following Friday. Friday nights, the store stayed open till nine, and they were having a big white sale that day. The money was already stacked on Mr. Cartwright's desk when I got there. It was a juicy haul. I didn't see Mr. Cartwright around, but... Hello, Mr. Fenton. Miss Prentice. But... But the money. I... I was listening when you and Mr. Cartwright made your plans, Mr. Fenton, and, and, and he caught me and forced me to help him. You understand, Harold. I mean, Mr. Fenton. Harold, times like these draw people together quickly, don't you think? Oh, I do. I really do. Miss Prentice. Helen. Thank you. Helen, Miss Prentice, Mr. Cartwright mentioned a woman in his life. You're not the one? Harold, of course not. Excuse me. I just thought... You remember the office party last Christmas? Oh, that? Well, that was just because he was under the mistletoe. And if you'd been under it instead of Mr. Cartwright... Really? Well. <laughs> oh, Fenton, you're here. Good. Anybody see you come up? It doesn't matter, really, Mr. Cartwright. Might even be better that way. Then you and Miss Prentice can say that I left minutes before the bandits arrived. You're right, of course, Harold. Thank you. Are you ready, Mr. Cartwright? I brought some wrapping paper for the money. Even brought along a handle with care sticker. That's the Fenton touch, you know. <laughs> Get on with it, will you? No need to be nervous. There. Neat? I spent eight years in wrapping and mailing. All right. You know what to do with it, Helen. I know. Uh, just a minute, Mr. Cartwright. I'm to take the money, remember? There's been a change, Fenton. We rewrote the script. You think that's wise? To fly in the face of my experience? Now, look, Fenton, we're not children. You lock us in the vault and take off with the money. You think we'd ever see you again? Well, you're questioning my honesty? I'm sure Miss Prentice will vouch for me. We're rather good friends. Uh, Miss Prentice, Helen. Unfortunately for you, Fenton, Helen's on my side. Now, if you wouldn't mind getting into the vault, huh? Me? Me? In the vault? But... This is a loaded gun, Fenton. Get in the vault. But... You came back for a second helping, that's all. The Confederate got away with the money, but I courageously slammed the vault door on you and went for help. But... Will they believe me? I imagine they'll find 50,000 somewhere around your house. They'll believe me. Helen. I see. I'm sorry, Harold. It's a nasty trick, but we're nasty people. You should have stuck to squirrels. Just one thing, Fenton. How did you ever get that 50000 out of here the first time? How? Well, I didn't, Mr. Cartwright. You didn't? Then where is it? It's still in the vault. I don't believe it. Oh, it's quite cleverly hidden. It took me most of that night I was locked in. Get in there and show me. I'm sorry, Mr. Cartwright. Get in there! No. I went through a lot for that money, Mr. Cartwright. Thirty years. I just as soon you shot me. Helen... Hold the gun on him. I'm going in and look. Well, don't be long. What if somebody should walk in? I'll be able to see if he's lying. Just watch him. You see anything? Not yet. 
I don't think it's possible that... Open the door so I can get some more light. Must be true. Crime changes people. I had never lied, yet I lied to Cartwright. I had never used violence, yet I got behind Helen and... I... I guess I'll go home. Mother will be wondering what's happened to me. Some more cereal, Harold? I don't think so, Mother. Thanks. What time is it? 8.10, son. Well, they would have opened the vault at 8 this morning. The police should be here any minute. Are you sure those two will implicate you, Harold? It seems likely, Mother. The gun would be hard to explain. And I think Miss Prentice will turn on Mr. Cartwright after a night in the vault. Yes, she's just the type. I'm sorry, Mother. I guess I just don't know much about women. It's all right, son. You think they'll be hard on you? Not very. I haven't spent any of the money. The insurance companies always look kindly on such cases. There they are. Harold! How long? Two years, Mother. Maybe less. Maybe even one. It's still a long time. A long time? After 30 years in Waterman's? Hardly. I'll get the door. Suspense, presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Jack Benny. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for Autolite, world's largest independent manufacturer of automotive electrical equipment. Autolite is proud to serve the greatest names in the industry. They are members of the Autolite family, as are the 98,000 Autolite distributors and dealers in the United States and thousands more in Canada and throughout the world. Our family also includes the nearly 30,000 men and women in 28 great Autolite plants from coast to coast and in still other Autolite plants in many foreign countries, as well as the 18,000 people who have invested a portion of their savings in Autolite. Every Autolite product is backed by constant research and precision built to the highest standards of quality and performance. So remember, from bumper to taillight, you're always right with Autolite. Next week, a story of revenge. The desperate effort of a murderer to destroy the man who had committed him to prison. The story is called Concerto for Killer and Eyewitnesses. Our star, the director of suspense, Mr. Elliot Lewis. That's next week on... Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis with music composed by Lucian Morrowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. A Good and Faithful Servant was written for suspense by Richard M. Powell. Portions of this program were transcribed. In tonight's cast, Norma Varden was heard as Mrs. Fenton, Doris Singleton as Helen, Gerald Moore as Mr. Cartwright, Joseph Kearns as Mr. Waterman, High Everback as Lieutenant Miller, and Charles Calvert as Mr. Wolf. Autolite spark plug or Autolite battery dealer or your nearest authorized Autolite service station, 
for on Western Union by number and ask for operator 25. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is the CBS Radio Network. Yes, Roma wines taste better. Better because only Roma selects from the world's greatest wine reserves for your pleasure. And now, Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Roma Wines present... Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Mr. Hume Cronin in Make Mad the Guilty. A suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines, those better-tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than any other wine in the world. And tonight, Roma has great news for you. Big money-saving news that will let you serve Roma wine more often without increasing your budget for friendly entertaining for delightful everyday dining. Now, Roma Wines bring you Hume Cronin in a remarkable tale of Suspense. Bert. Bert. Yes, my dear. Well, have you found anything? I'm looking, my dear. On the theatrical page, I suppose. Of course, my dear. Looking. You've been doing that kind of looking for six months. Give me that paper. Bet I'll find your job in about six minutes. Yes, my dear. It is true that theatrical season, particularly in San Francisco, particularly for Shakespearean actors, was inclined to be sluggish. And it is true that I had never had the great leading roles. Hamlet, Othello, Lear. Although my success in supporting parts amongst amateur groups had been little short of dazzling. It is also true that these successes were of some 15 seasons past. Still, the talent of your true artist is not to be thwarted or denied. But this was a matter which I had never properly succeeded in demonstrating to my wife, Elizabeth. Until at last, perforce, I was persuaded that the poor creature's life was dominated by only the most mercenary considerations. Face it, little man. You were washed up as an actor before you started. You've just been looking in the wrong part of this paper. Merciful heavens, desist! Have I not, in deference to your penurious concern, found you a boarder, young Longstreet? <laughs> Him. A sublime specimen of lusty manhood. Don't try to change the subject. Yes, my dear. Oh, hey, here's something. Listen to this. Yes, my dear. A man with personality, poise, presence to appear before the public must be able to dress and act the part of impeccable good taste. What do you think of that? Why, sounds most promising. All right, little man, the job is practically yours. Uh, what is the nature of the position? Floor walker at Burdock's department store. Floor walker? My dear, that's Listen, impossible. I'm through supporting you as of today, understand? Yes, my dear, but then... And I'm... you'll take the job and like it. Yes, my dear. <laughs> With deep misgivings, I accepted the position. Nevertheless, I carried my role with dignity, undismayed by the tittering clerks who found in my wing collar a curious novelty. Months passed. Uncomplainingly, I bore the yoke of my disgrace. 
that the strain of long hours began to tax my strength. One day I was feeling particularly unwell. I left the store early and picked up my car in the parking lot. My only thought was to reach the haven of our modest residence on the opposite side of San Francisco Bay, but even driving was an effort. I, I was faint by the time I reached the checking station on the approach to the Golden Gate Bridge. Hi, Mr. Matthews. Hey, you're early today. Hey, what's the matter? You look kind of... It's my head again. Probably migraine. Ah, here's your change. You know, you ought to take better care of yourself, Mr. Matthews. Now, if I was you... Yes, I'll be all right. Diet's the thing, Mr. Matthews. Now, they say if you eat more... As I drove slowly across the great high span of the bridge and on through the Marin County hills, I knew, by some sixth sense perhaps, that this would be the day. The discovery... Elizabeth, my wife, and our boarder, young Longstreet. A broad-shouldered athletic nitwit. A swimming beach idol. I was returning early, you understand, and unexpectedly. Cautiously, I avoided the flagstone walk. On the soft lawn, my footsteps were noiseless. Quietly, I crossed the porch. I threw open the door. Sure enough, suitcases packed for flight stood ready on the floor. You... Now, Mr. Matthews, oh, I... Oh, shame. Oh, despair. Oh, nuts. Don't look so shocked. What did you expect? This is my burden of grief, my cross to bear. Oh, shame, where is thy blush? Come down off your high horse, Bert. You wanted to get rid of me, didn't you? Well, I'm leaving. If you don't like it, you know what you can do. In silence, I have suffered your petty deceptions, your taunts, your gross vulgarities... But now, at long last, the worm turns. Bert, put down that gun. Hey, hold on a minute, Mr. Matthews. I My heart have... has turned to stone. Bert, you're ridiculous. Don't make me laugh. Ridiculous? On the contrary, my dear wife, I am, for the first time in 15 years, a man. Now, listen, Mr. Matthews. Look at him. Always the tragic actor, the great tragedian. You're positively silly with that revolver trembling in your hand. Give it to me. Keep your distance. I warn you. Now, look here, Mr. Matthews. Betty and I are going to... Don't worry, handsome. The little man won't shoot. I know him too well. Now, give me that gun. I warned you. I said, give me that gun. Oh, that you had 40,000 lives. One is too poor, too weak for my revenge. Hey! Hit him, handsome. Well, we're on our way. Bring the suitcases, handsome. Shall I hit him again, Betty? Oh, the little man won't bother us anymore. Oh, just one. For luck, huh? Uh, suit yourself. Yeah. To remember me. Bye. No. <laughs> Be seeing you, little man. Wait. So long, Matthews. Don't take any wooden Elizabeth. nickels, huh? Elizabeth, wait. What for? We've got places to go. Please, Elizabeth. I... I, I, I am the vanquished. It is I who must go. Pride compels it. I shall go far away, disappear, vanish from your life forever. He's nuts. Quiet. What's this you're trying to say, Bert? You're offering to disappear? Vanish, Scrap? Precisely. Put down the suitcases, Hanson. The little man has something up his sleeve. Sit on the floor, worm. And remember, we haven't got all day to talk. Please, please understand, dear wife. In my disappearance, in my seeming death, if you will, advantages to be derived for all concerned. I'm listening. My life insurance policy, for instance. Twenty thousand dollars. Not an inconsiderable sum. Say, I'd forgotten about that. Yes, but softly, dear wife, softly, let me finish. I was thinking rather of other advantages you would derive. 
My sudden death, presumptive of course, would give you freedom to marry your healthy milkweed, this handsome non-entity. Hey, hey, watch yourself, Matthews. I don't like that stuff. Uh, my deepest apologies, handsome. Oh. Uh, now, Elizabeth, to the subject of the insurance. Even in my far-off oblivion, I'll have need of money. I thought perhaps you would collect the money and... And what? Forward it to me. Oh, so that's it. <laughs> You're not the fool I thought you were. There are mutual advantages, as I have indicated. I would have the $20,000, a trifling reward for my sacrifice. You would have a well-furnished home and uh, handsome. Maybe you've got something. Let me think it over. I don't get it at all. You will, handsome. You will. <laughs> Elizabeth agreed, as I knew she would. She was, in fact, delighted. Longstreet gave us brief pause, but in the end, my charming wife persuaded him. Due to early training in the theater, the strategy of my demise was masterful. After three days' rehearsal with my two accomplices, I drove to the checking station of the Golden Gate Bridge. I was careful to enter the gate na- manned by my acquaintance. Ah, how are you feeling today, Mr. Man? I is... protest, sir, with emphatic emphasis. I don't get you. This toll levy upon the use of a public thoroughfare by my conscience, it's unsocial, immoral, a downright swindle. Hey, 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 what's got into you? Come on, pay your fare. I know you not, magpie. Huh? Are you carrion? Who, me? Are you fowl, flesh, or fish? Here, vulture, your pound of flesh. Hey, look, Mr. Matthews, hey, you better see a doctor. Her indeed. But the fellow would remember me. I drove slowly, watching in the rear view mirror. Near the center of the great bridge, high above the foaming sea, Longstreet and Elizabeth pulled in behind me. A brake came in the traffic. I signaled Longstreet. He pulled his car alongside mine. Quickly, I leaped to his car, leaving mine abandoned at the very center of the bridge. The abandoned car, the suicide note I'd left on the seat, would bear mute testimony to my tragic fate. And by my conscience... The word of the fellow at the checking station would tip the scales. There remained but to vanish from the eyes of all who'd known me, and my desperate deed was done. Elizabeth and Longstreet drove me to Sacramento. I boarded the train for Mexico. The frail, meek little floor walker was no more. I was dead. Gone. Kaput. Presumptive death, indeed. In truth, I was reborn. And on some not too distant tomorrow, I would return... And the lives of Elizabeth and Handsome would be forfeit. For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Hume Cronin in Make Mad the Guilty. Roma Wines presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater thrills, Suspense. Between the acts of suspense, this is Truman Bradley for Roma Wines. There's a big reason why more Americans enjoy Roma than any other wines. It's because Roma gives you an extra pleasure dividend in fuller bouquet, richer body, and better taste. And Roma gives you still another extra dividend. Now you can buy Roma wine at handsome savings. Now you can enjoy the delicious taste luxury of your favorite Roma wines and get extra change from a single dollar bill. 
Yes, you can now save up to 20% on finer-tasting Roma wines. Take advantage of these big Roma savings. Buy Roma by the case. Enjoy delicious Roma wine more often with meals or when you entertain. And save money on every bottle. Ask for Roma, R-O-M-A, Roma Wines, for extra good taste and extra cash savings. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Hume Cronin in Make Mad the Guilty, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Yes, the frail and meek little floor walker was no more. In Mexico, a new man wore my shoes. I became a man of purpose and daring. Through the art of makeup and disguise, I gave myself a villainous and frightful appearance, corresponding to my new character. I returned boldly to San Francisco with no fear of recognition. Thus was I privileged to read in the local papers of my own suicide and later of my wife's marriage to young Longstreet. Weeks passed. I learned Elizabeth had received the insurance money. I was well aware, of course, that she had no intention of giving me any part of it. The moment of final settlement had arrived. Late at night, as befits one returning from the grave, I rang the bell at the cottage I once called home. Oh. It is I, your lately deceased husband. Thank you. Hanson. May the dead enter with the quick. Uh, permit me to force my entry. Oh. On my word, you're frightened. Well, that ridiculous makeup you have on. Why do you have to go around like a scarecrow frightening people? Hey, what goes on here? Harry Bert's here. Ah, handsome. In nightshirt and armed with a kitchen knife. An heroic figure, to be sure. Matthews. Gosh, your face... The face of Lazarus, risen from the dead, transformed by the chemistry of death. Don't be funny, Bert. What do you want? The insurance money. $20,000. Are you surprised? Oh, you had no to come back, Matthews. A bargain is a bargain. Here's all the money I have in the house. Take it. Now, will you go? May I repeat, a bargain is a bargain. Oh, stand there, stupid. What are you waiting for? Well, what do you want me to do, Benny? Y- you shall I... Uh... The knife gleams in the hand of the shirt-tail killer. Hit him, handsome. Now, Matthews, I mean I... Ah! Ah, you've observed this automatic in my hand. Also observe as I remove the safety catch. I see your face grows pale. Now, wait a minute, Bert. What do you want? Dear me, hadn't I made that clear? I thought I had. I want my $20,000. Now, listen, Matthews, take it easy. We only collected it yesterday. Precisely. Hence my timely arrival this evening. Well? Bert, I can't give it to you. Tonight, I mean, I haven't got it. You forget, my dear, that I have lived with you in apparent connubial bliss for nearly 15 years. I know your habits all too well. I would venture to say that not only have you the money in cash, but that I know where you've hidden it. Oh, no, no. I know she didn't do that. No? And what is this? So you did. Why, you... I could have told you that she wasn't to be trusted. Dear me, you have so much to learn, handsome. And so little time to learn. No, no, Matthews, wait. Wait! Bert! Bert, you killed him! Not I, dear wife. I, as you remember, have no existence. I am dead. But you... Bert! Good night. Parting is such sweet sorrow. Would I could stay to see you explain this whole thing to the police? 
When it be morrow? Perhaps you see it now, eh? Perhaps now you fully understand the sweep and majesty and genius of it. For you must know I had planned it. Yes, planned it every step of the way from the day I introduced Elizabeth to Longstreet until the poor wretch was found hovering over his corpse. Had ever a man played and conceived so magnificent a role, and in no tawdry theater for the make-believe, but in the vast arena of life itself, there was but one thing lacking. That one ingredient so essential to the full savoring by the artist of his creative genius. An audience. And even that I had foreseen. I had my audience ready-made. Elizabeth. Elizabeth should be my audience. Her frantic protestations of innocence, her unbelieved cries and lamentations that the ingenuity of my plot would be meat and drink and the very breath of life to me. By a slight alteration of my appearance, I was able to attend her trial. Like a spectator at my own play, I could not have directed the performance better and myself. Then, then this remarkable woman, with the murder weapon still uh, figuratively reeking in her hand, has the temerity to tell this court and this jury that the crime was committed by a former husband who conveniently rose from the dead and then disappeared once more into limbo. <laughs> no, no, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. She is guilty. And the state asks that you find her guilty. With full knowledge and consent to the penalty with which that guilt entails. The penalty of death. No, 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 he's alive. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have. I'll find you the defendant, Elizabeth Longstreet. Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. <laughs> Dispatch this wire, please. All right. Uh, Mrs. Elizabeth Longstreet, death row. Oh. Uh, you can deliver it, can you not? Oh, sure, sure. Um... You have a rendezvous with death. From the depth of experience can assure you he is by no means an unfriendly companion. Unfriendly? Oh, unfriendly companion. Heartfelt sympathy, courage. Courage. Uh, 39 words. Let's see, that'll be 78 cents. Out of the dollar. Thank you. Really is sad when you come to think of it. I guess you were a friend of hers, huh? Hmm? Uh, in a sense, to be sure. <laughs> yes, in a sense. Oh, wait a minute. You didn't sign it. Just sign it, little man. The next day, I eagerly scanned the papers for the outburst that this sensational communication must certainly cause. But there was nothing. So I sent a letter, something a little more direct. I scanned the press anew. But still no sign. No single word to tell me how she had received it. What was it? A conspiracy of silence? I was like a player performing to a cold and empty house. Clearly, some stronger medicine was needed. Yes, sir? Ah, lilies. The symbol of purity and death. They are lovely, aren't they? 
Fresh cut this morning, Sweet too. poetry of flowers. A most delicate yet firm reminder of my unwavering concern. Do you wish to make a purchase, sir? Oh, or... decidedly. Give me all you have. I wish them sent by special messenger. The season is propitious. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Where uh, to, sir? To Mrs. Elizabeth Longstreet. To Hatchapi Prison. The Death House. Mrs. Elizabeth. <gasps> and would you mind writing a card? As you can see, my right hand has suffered a slight injury. Very well, sir. Uh, what do you wish me to write? Uh, just say, from the little man who wasn't there. And sign it, Bert. My own name, you see. That surely would bring results. But no, nothing. Once again, nothing. I saw it now. She was playing with me, deliberately playing with me, concealing my communications from her jailers. And my time was running out. The execution was within the week. But I would move her. I'd move her in such wise that she would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with hurried speech, make mad the guilty. Okay, next. Uh, it's my understanding that the state law requires the presence of witnesses to a prison execution. I therefore request... Okay, who do you want to see go? Mrs. Elizabeth Longstreet. Uh, let me see. That's uh, Friday morning. What's your name? Uh, Bertram Mason. Uh-huh. Let me see some identification. Driver license, anything you got. Identification? Yeah, yeah, anything, anything at all. Well, you see, I'm... I'm, I'm sorry, bud. We've got to know who we invite to these parties some other time. Hold on, sir. I demand... I said I'll... some other time. Now, beat it. Do you hear me? She was slipping from my grasp, don't you see? The curtain was already beginning to descend. And still, there was no audience to hear my curtain lies. That night, I paced the streets in a torment of indecision. Then, as dawn was breaking, I realized what I must do. A drastic, desperate measure... But I must take it. The execution was the following morning, and at the earliest moment, I presented myself at the prison gate. Yeah? What can I do for you? It's imperative, absolutely imperative, that I be present at the execution of Elizabeth Longstreet. Oh, I'm sorry, mister. Now, wait. You don't understand. Huh? I... Can't be done. Oh, if you was a relative, say... That's uh... it. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I am. I am related. Yeah? Well, that might be different. How are you related to her? I am her husband. Her husband? Oh, now don't try to get funny, mister. It just so happened she murdered her husband. No, no, not him. Her former husband. The man whose name was mentioned so often at the trial. They thought I was dead, but I'm not. I, I'm Bert Matthews. Oh, a crackpot. Huh? Save it for a soapbox, brother. No, no, now, wait. I can prove it. She will recognize Sure, sure, I know. Now, run along. I implore you. I, I beg you, call the warden. Tell him that there's a man here. What was that? Yeah. Not now she won't recognize you. What do you mean? I mean, that's it. It's all over. Finished. Oh, no. No. Not dead. That's right, brother. He's dead. Suddenly, my life was empty. And all my plans of triumph were as ashes in my mouth. Hers had been the triumph, not mine. Hers the tragic spectacle. Hers the hour upon the stage. Now, in truth, was I really dead. Or who now would applaud my artistry? Who would believe my tale or even recognize my face? Only tragedy and death gain recognition. Yes. And therein was my answer. Therein at last would I breach the portals of undying fame, leaving behind me a manuscript setting forth the facts in full detail. I would actually die. 
The first man in history to die and come to life and die again since Lazarus. I searched the streets until I found a car with the keys and the ignition lock. I stole it. I drove to the Golden Gate Bridge, for I would not only die twice, I would die twice in the same place and the same way. I drove past the gateman and hey, on. Hey, wait! On hey, to the very highest here. part of the parapet. I would stand while horrified onlookers gazed helplessly. Then, as eager hands reached out to save my life, I would leap. I was dimly conscious of the siren behind me, but paid no heed. I drove faster, faster to my splendid doom. <laughs> I heard a shot, then another. My car was out of control, swerving, lurching swerving like a crazy thing. I think for a moment I lost consciousness. And when next I knew what I was doing, I had crawled from the wreckage and was staggering towards the railing of the bridge. And I was being pursued. Even now, at this late hour, some monstrous fate seemed bent on thwarting my design. Stop! 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 stop. We'll shoot! No, no, they would not stop me. I would not be thwarted. I staggered on. Searing pain in my shoulder. I fell. I struggled to my feet again. The railing was almost within my grasp. Another shot, that rending, tearing agony of the bullet through my chest. I was on my knees again. But I must. I must. I clawed at the steel railing painfully. Painfully lifting myself up for a moment. I balanced... I heard their voices coming to me from a long way off, like voices of the dead. Stand back, stand back, stand back. This guy's playing for heaven. Same license number. I wonder why he ran. Yeah. Tough, and he looks like such a honest old guy. Please. Please, is there no one to believe me? Just one. The lowliest of men, the tiniest of lisping children. Just one. Before this stage is dark, before I shuffle off this mortal coil, before I die. Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. R-O-M-A. Roma. America's favorite wines. This is Truman Bradley inviting you to try Roma wines. To learn for yourself why more Americans enjoy Roma than any other wine. It's because only Roma selects from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines to bring you better tasting wines. And now, you and your friends can enjoy delightful Roma wines more often because Roma prices have been reduced as much as 20%. So, make a note tonight to stock up on Roma wines tomorrow. Take advantage of Roma's new low prices to enjoy more of Roma's premium quality. Ask for Roma, R-O-M-A. 
the greatest name in wine, and your best buy in good taste. This is Hume Cronin. It's been a great pleasure appearing for you on Suspense. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I know you'd like to hear about next week's Suspense show when Roma Wines will bring you June Havoc in the story of a girl whose fatal resemblance to a famous movie star leads to murder. I'll see you soon, I hope. Thank you. Good night. Hume Cronin appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of Living in a Big Way, starring Gene Kelly and Marie McDonald. Tonight's suspense play was by Irving Moore and Robert Richards from an original story by Robert Rostin. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Miss June Havoc as star of Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. There's a lot of truth in the old saw about the loss of a horseshoe nail resulting in the loss of a kingdom. The tiniest detail can often lead to quite extraordinary results, particularly if the detail is observed by a clever con man with sufficient larceny in his soul. A man like the amazing Dr. Alcazar, who parlayed a piece of string into a small fortune. Listen. Listen, then, as Mr. Vincent Price stars in The Green and Gold String, which begins exactly one minute from now. That dulcet voice belongs to Abby, my good and devoted assistant who stands outside my studio here in Coney Island and drums up business. Of course, I wrote his spiel. And did it pay off one evening last fall? Uh, thank you kindly. Good evening, sir. Uh, are you Dr. Alcazar? Alcazar, indeed I am, madam, at your service. Uh, I'd like a reading, if you don't mind. Hmm. Age 35 to 40, cheap purse, expensive suit, suit too tight and too short, not hers, a hand-me-down accent, British cockney, nervous, hmm. something on her mind, possibly a housekeeper or a lady's maid. I showed it to the chair reserved for customers. It's under a mirror. Ah, they're handy mirrors. <laughs> in here, I sit with all these black curtains. Black velvet, madam, to minimize all distractions. 
Yet your crystal ball? Yes, madam. The mysterious orb in which I see revealed the future as well as the past. But in your case, I think it won't be needed. Your psychic projection is extremely strong. Even now, I can clearly sense that... That what? That you're deeply troubled. Well, in a way, I, I am all upset, like. But... Uh... You see, sir, it's a private matter, and... Uh... Of course, of course. Uh, may I suggest that you relax as much as possible? Any undue tension disturbs and obfuscates your aura. And in order to obtain closer contact with your psyche, I'd like to hold some personal possession. Oh, no, 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 not your brooch. No personal jewelry. Its intrinsically counteractive density tends to abdumbrate the necessary metaphysic radiation. It does? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, perhaps something in your purse, hmm? Or a key. That's another gambit in the little game I play. By leaning back and half-closing my eyes, I can watch the mirror and see the contents of an open purse. In hers, I saw a roll of stamps, a shabby wallet, a half-eaten candy bar, a postmarked envelope addressed to Miss Lily, Lily something or other, a folded, neatly folded sheet of tissue paper, violet-colored, wrapped around a length of gift-wrapping cord, interwoven strands of green and gold, hairpins, a compact. Will this do? Uh, your compact. Excellent, excellent. Now, to sense the vibrations. Your name. Your name. You are named for a flower. Yes, a lily. Oh, well, I never... You have a fondness for candy, a sweet tooth? Oh, no, I'm just awful. Your present life is bound up with a person of great wealth. I think a woman. Oh, it's the truth, everyone. You have a highly sensitive anima and are therefore a most sympathetic subject. You are an excellent seamstress and... Uh... And that, madam, concludes the general reading. Oh, is that all? Well, I could go deeper, much deeper, with a special delineation for an additional 50 cents. Uh, shall I continue? All right. Uh, uh, I guess you might as well. Excellent, excellent. Now, if you'll state your problem briefly. Oh? Do I have to? I should think you'd already know. I see madam finds it necessary to test me further. Very well. Well, now, I seem to see paper, tissue paper. What a strange color. Almost orchid. Orchid-colored paper and something else. Two colors interwoven, green and gold. Green and gold. Ooh. Have I mentioned something which frightens you? Oh, yes. Oh, well, now you should have sufficient proof of my powers. And since my time is limited, I suggest you tell me the rest of the details. Hmm? Well, it's about my miss... My sister. My sister and her husband. You see, sir, I, I've just found out that he's deceiving her like, and I'm the only one that knows. Uh, the eternal triangle. Oh, no, it's nothing like that. Oh? That's why I... I don't rightly know what to do. The funny thing is that what he's doing to deceive her is making her happy. Now, my problem is, should I tell my sister 
Or should I let well enough alone? I see, I see, I see. You are entangled, madam, in a most unusual psychic web. Now, uh, one moment, one moment. There are widely differentiated karmas here. Two paths lie before you. I see you taking one and then the other, but it makes no difference which you follow. For whatever you do, the result will be the same. And there now, I, I trust your mind has been set at rest, huh? You mean that's all, sir? Apparently all that fate intends you to know, at least for the present. Well, if you say That will be one dollar and a half. I'd forgotten all about the mousy little woman until three days later. Avi and I were having breakfast in the diner near the subway station. I was scanning the morning paper while I half listened to Avi's cheerful and rather uh, witless you know, chatter. Last year we was already in Miami Beach. Remember, boss? Mm. We traveled in style, mm. but man, yet. Yeah, this year looks like we won't even scrape up enough scratch for bus fare. Sure be a laugh if we were stuck here all winter. Lily Morton. <laughs> I thought her last name began with an M. Poor wench that same night. What you talking about? And the old friend, despair not. We may winter in the sun after all. How come? Look at this picture. Recall that face? Huh? No, why? Three nights ago on Friday, you ushered her into the studio. Oh, one of the suckers, huh? So what's she done to get in the paper? She got herself murdered, poor soul, that's... Same night, yeah? It seems she worked as a maid up in Rockland County. She took a late bus back there from New York, and walking from the bus to the house where she worked, well, she encountered someone who strangled her. Oh, it's tough. But how does that make us any dull? Listen to this. Gloria Druce, former luminary of the New York stage, now Mrs. Clinton DeVries, today expressed great sorrow over the brutal murder of her personal maid, Lily Morton. Declaring that she wanted to do everything possible to help bring the murderer to justice, Miss Truth said she was posting a reward of $5,000. Five grand? And you know who done it? No, no, but I have a hunch. And I have an idea how, uh... uh let me see now. I need proper clothes, cutaways, striped trousers. For you, a chauffeur's cap should suffice. And we need a car, limousine. A witch? Abby, how much money do you have? What? Working capital to make money, you have to spend money. I've got about 28 bucks and some chicken feet. And I have less than five. I have it. My two $50 gold pieces. With them, we'll have a total you of... You ain't gonna spend them. You always said they was for good luck. And so I did, Abby. And here is the good luck I've been waiting for. That afternoon, we arranged to rent a limousine, a 1938 Rolls, which I felt exactly suited my persona. We also rented the necessary clothes, and the next day we set out to visit Mrs. Clinton DeVries, named Gloria Drew. Uh, what's the name of the place? Leonard's Cove. You'll see the sign. I gotcha. You know, I never even heard of this name, Gloria Drew. Never heard of her, the greatest Juliet of our century, the theater's fairest ornament for more than a generation. I noticed you had a look around. Merely to refresh my recollection. After all, she's been in retirement for more than ten years. Oh, then she couldn't be any spring chicken. A woman like Gloria Druce is ageless. But it's my guess she's on the dark side of 50. Now, look, Abby, while I'm talking to her, I wish you'd somehow manage to get inside the house. Get acquainted with the servants. Well, huh? sure, it'll be a cinch. Uh, what should I find out? Anything and everything, but your main assignment is... Mr. Clinton DeVries. Dr. Alcazar, is Mrs. DeVries expecting you? No, unfortunately, I was... Who is it, Edward? Uh, Dr. Alcazar, madam. Alcazar? 
I don't believe I know. Madam, forgive me for taking this liberty, but... He says it's about Miss Lily. Lily? Oh, come into the library, Doctor. Thank you, thank you. Ay, what a charming room. A perfect setting for you, Miss Drew. I beg your pardon, uh, Mrs. DeVries. Oh, don't apologize. I like it when people remember. Oh, now what is this about Lily? If you have any information, shouldn't you have gone to the police? Oh, but I've come here seeking information from you. Uh, perhaps you'll let me explain. Oh, please do. Won't you sit down? Thank you. Now then, you see, Mrs. DeVries, I'm a metaphysician, a sort of professor of the occult. Oh. But understand, madam. I have never used my powers or knowledge for personal financial gain, only in the interest of science. What has all this to do with Lily? Well, recently, about ten days ago, I was engaged in a simple experiment with my crystal ball, in the course of which I encountered a very unusual interruption of the comic stream. A total picture of a woman in distress, a woman in dire danger, seeking help. At the time, I made a full notation of the occurrence and then put the matter from my mind until yesterday. Yes? At the home of friends in Baltimore, I chanced to look at a New York newspaper. Lily Morton's photograph caught my eye. And you think it was Lily you saw in the crystal? That is the question, Miss Truth, which has brought me all these miles to see you. Why, this is fascinating. Please, if you will permit me, I'd like to discuss the face I saw. Yes, please go ahead. I saw a woman, part of her form, but dimly, but I saw her features very clearly, a rather plain, almost homely face, Welsh, perhaps English, colorless hair, plainly dressed, close-set gray eyes, no makeup, a mole here near the right ear, one gold cap tooth, upper left incisor, Yes, it is, Lily. You're quite sure? Oh, yes, there can't be any doubt. <sighs> well, Mr. you have set my mind at rest. I, I can't thank you enough. Oh, you're not leaving. I mean, aren't you going to try to find out more? Uh, you don't think I understand? Well, the Doctor, in these few minutes, you have convinced me completely. I'm greatly honored. And I was thinking, suppose you try to get in touch with Lily... Wherever she is, or, or isn't that possible? Well, of course, I have often received messages from the beyond, but... Then, but... then you could find out who killed her. Oh, but, madam, don't you think the police... The police, they haven't found a single clue. Oh, won't you please try? Well, it's a challenge. Though I must warn you, it's not likely to succeed. <laughs> Nothing. The crystal is entirely blank. I'm wasting your time, dear lady. Oh, please. Don't give up yet. Well, as you wish. Ah, here is something. It, it's clouding. Now the mists are clearing. A woman's figure? No. No, it's gone. All I see is a serpent. No. No, apparently it's a rope, but oddly colored, interwoven strands of green and gold. The colors of the rope are, are vivid against a background of violet. It's a peculiar shade of violet. Oh. It looks... Oh, but the light's fading, the mists are closing in. Oh, I'm sorry. The image is gone. I'm truly sorry. I think we're being misled. You mean because what you saw hadn't anything to do with Lily? Exactly. No. 
It wasn't about Lily. It was about me. You? Yes. Just a minute. Doctor, is this the same shade of violet? Yes. Yes, this is what I saw. The same violet tissue paper and this interwoven green and gold string. But why? It was such a powerful image. Has this any emotional meaning, Mr. Debris? Well, yes, it has. It has to do with George. So that's your husband's name? Oh, no, no. George is an old admirer of mine. Of Gloria Drews. Not Gloria DeVries. I've never seen him. I don't know his real name. We just call him George. And this paper and string is what he always wraps his presents in. An old admirer who sends you presents. It's most romantic. Isn't it? There's no note with his gift. No, no address, nothing. Except in the very first one. That was nearly two years ago. He enclosed an old theatre program from the green and the gold. Ah, the green and the gold. Oh, remember. <laughs> oh, yes, I saw you in that. I'll never forget it. Well, that's how I know he's an admirer. You don't know what it means to an old actress, Doctor. To be remembered. Ah, yes. Yes. Uh, what sort of gifts does he send? Oh, books, perfume, odd little knickknacks. No candy? Oh, yes. Every third or fourth package, heavenly liqueur chocolate. Ah, yes, I'm sure they're delicious. But all this is keeping us from poor Lily. Won't you try again? No, not just now. I'm afraid it would be useless now, Mrs. DeVries. But if you like, I'll resume my efforts tonight. Alone. moment, we continue with Suspense. Do you like surprises? Do you like fun? And do you like to meet famous personalities? Then you're sure to like the Amos and Andy Music Hall. The Amos and Andy Music Hall, located in the grand ballroom of the Lodge of the Mystic Knights of the Sea, is presided over by three of your favorites, the Kingfish, Amos, and Andy. Every weekday evening, Monday through Friday, over most of these same CBS radio stations, they play host to you and to one or more of the top stars in show business who's a featured surprise guest. People like Jack Benny, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, Judy Garland, Tony Martin, and lots of other exciting big-name stars drop in to join the fun, the variety, and the music at the Amos and Andy Music Hall. Why don't you drop in, too? Remember, the Amos and Andy Music Hall comes to you every weekday evening, Monday through Friday, over most of these same CBS radio stations. It's a treat for all the family. And now we continue with The Green and Gold String, starring Mr. Vincent Price. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. It was nearly six when Abby and I left the DeVries house and headed for a little restaurant in Nyack where the Shadro used to be excellent. <laughs> it still is. Well, now that you've satisfied the inner man, Abby, could I have a report? Well, I found out a lot about this DeVries guy from the servants, but I don't know if it helps. He's, he's around 40 to 45. Uh, considerably younger than his wife. Yeah, he's been married to her about five years. Uh, they rub along okay, but no hard throbs, at least not with him. Uh. But he likes polo ponies and sailboats, and she's got the dough. Ah, very good, Abby. Now, one or two questions. Hold it, I ain't finished. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Now, as to Sud Clinton's race and whereabouts, he's got his boat moored somewhere out on Long Island Sound. You see, she's got a beach house out there, and that's where he went morning of the day this lily was killed. And he's still there? Yeah, but he's due home tomorrow, time for dinner. Now, mate, with your questions. Abby, I haven't a one. You've really covered the ground. I'm proud of you. Well, then it's your turn, brother. Seeing as we spent nearly our last dime hoping to horn in on that five grand reward, I think you ought to fill me in. With pleasure, Abby. First, I know who killed Lily. Then let's spill it to the cops and collide. Not so fast. I found out something else. The same killer's planning to kill again, I think soon. Lily was murdered only because of something she found out. Yeah? What? This man, this killer, has been sending presents to Mrs. DeVries. Books, perfume, candy. Well, it's my guess that someday soon, the candy will be the death of her. And Lily Watts has found out who he is. Indubitably. And since the dame you're talking about is the DeVries dame, then I suppose you right. think... The guy is the DeVries guy. Oh, well, Doc, it couldn't be. He was out on Long Island. No, Abby, he was hiding, waiting for Lily Morton. Look, it was easy. He started out in the morning ostensibly for Long Island, but instead he hid his car and lay low the whole day. He knew the shortcut Lily always took from the bus stop through the back of the estate, and that's where he killed her. Then he drove off to the beach house, where he was supposed to have been all day. And I suppose you got all that from your crystal ball. No, no, from Lily Morton a few hours before she was killed. Oh, well, you're reaching, Doc. I told you I knew one thing the police don't know. Yeah, if it was this Clint, you said yourself you got no proof, and Lily ain't doing no talking now. Curse, Abby, to the point. You're getting better and better. So what do we do? Pick us a park bench, sit around getting corns, waiting for Mr. Clint George to send his frau a popsicle full of strychnine. <laughs> I don't think we'd have very long to wait. I think he's about ready to strike. But since our funds will only see us through another day at the most... You said a mouthful It's word. up to us to smoke him out. And I have an idea just how to do it. Oh, good afternoon, Dr. Alcazar. Forgive me for bothering you at this time, dear lady, just when your husband's returned. Why, that's... Well, I have, shall we say, certain sources of information. You found out something? Yes, something startling, almost unbelievable. But I, I must check it further before I... Oh, but I have to know. Can't you tell me? I, I'd rather not. Not on the telephone. Oh, then you come to dinner, please. Oh, no, no, no. That would be imposing. Nonsense. I've told Clinton all about you. Indeed? I warn you. He's a terrible skeptic. But you can convince him. I know you. Sure, for a cognac, doctor? Well, yes, yes, thank you, Mr. DeVries. Oh, now, doctor, do tell me what's happened. I told Clinton about your seeing Lily and the crystal, and about the paper and string. Ah, that string, that green and gold string. Curious, you must admit, Mr. DeVries. <clears throat> Very curious. Indeed, yes. And if I sounded excited when I phoned, I was. You see, Mr. Mrs. DeVries, I, I've been at work on our problem, and suddenly I saw, or rather I sensed, that the tissue paper and the green and gold string were not part of your psychic stream. Who's then? Lily Morton. Lily? But why? What could George mean to Lily? I believe he killed her. George? Why, that is the most preposterous idea. Uh, 
Are you sure? To be frank, no. But I'm convinced that one more evocation of the psychmantic waves will bring confirmation or the reverse. Oh, Doctor, then couldn't you do it here tonight? Well, I could try, unless Mr. DeVries objects. No, go ahead. Matter of fact, I'd like to sit in. Excellent. I was hoping you would. Is the room dark enough? Quite, thank you. Oh, what nonsense. Clinton, don't fidget. Ah, uh, here is something. It's cloudy. Yes. I can see the green and gold serpent on the violet background. And now I see a man. Is it George? I don't know. I can only see his back. His shoulders shake. And he is laughing an evil, malevolent laugh. George has done nothing evil. He's only... The picture is changing. Now I see this room. It is morning, and there is a package on the desk, wrapped in violet paper. A woman enters. It's you, Gloria. You see the package, and you're delighted. Be careful, Gloria. You think this is a gift sent with love, but it is sent only to lull you into a false sense of security. Why? Why? Because one day, someday, a package will come that will spell your death. <coughs> Clinton. The image is changing. It's another room now, and Lily Morton is there. She is staring in amazement at something she has found, a ball of green and gold string and a roll of violet tissue paper. And finding them has shown her the identity of George. She knew and never told me. Lily is troubled by her knowledge. She doesn't know what to do. She takes a sheet of the paper, a little coil of the string, and she is gone. And now the image of George again. Still, I, I cannot see his face, but he is staring after Lily. He knows she has discovered him. And he knows she might tell. Perhaps. And now we are in a place of shadows. George is lurking there, waiting. He hears Lily's footsteps. He tenses. He leaps at her and seizes her by the throat. Oh. Now she is motionless, lifeless. He bends down and finds her purse, takes something from it with his gloved hand. The paper and the string. He's stealing away. If only, only I could see his face. Try. You must try. Wait. At last, at last he is turning. We are going to see his face. He... That's enough. Stay where you are, both of you. Don't move. Clinton, you killed Lily. And you, too, if you're not quiet. Your plan with the candy might have worked, Mr. DeVries, but with a gun, you don't have a chance. Shut up. Gloria, open the safe and take out the money you put there this morning. Come on, move. Oh, all right. Okay, DeVries, that'll do. Drop the gun. What? Oh! Oh! Uh, I'm sorry, lady, but it was him or me. Oh. Him or all of us. That was very terrifying, completely to the point. You've really got a grasp for this kind of work. Harry, Harry! Yeah, boss? Look what just arrived in the mail. Oh, oh. oh the same. Gloria Drews, has she sent us the five Gs? Take a look. Angie's. Doc, what are we going to do? Well, what do you suggest? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, we could 
split it and quit. Each of us do what we want. Heavy, you'd let money break up our winning combination. But not me, Doc. Good. Then let's use our hard-gotten gains to set you and me up in business. Business? What kind of business? Alcazar Associates, private investigators. With you doing the legwork and me reading the crystal ball, we're as pinched to make a million. Savages who bucketed around over most of Europe, destroying everything that was beautiful? According to history, they lived and did their damage over 1,400 years ago. But sometimes one wonders if the vandals really died out. Certainly there's a group roaming America, especially during the outdoor months, that acts like the vandals of old. You've seen their work. They're the ones who make sure our picnic spots and roadsides are littered with sandwich wrappings, pop bottles, and beer cans. It's carelessness, not viciousness, that prompts their destructive behavior. Could be that you yourself have been careless in that fashion once or twice. Now, make a vow against it. Do your part to help keep America beautiful. hear America's favorite shows on the CBS Radio Network. And now, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. In a moment, Act One of Formula for Death. Written especially for suspense by Jonathan Bundy. Now, look here, Fernal. You assured us you'd begin grinding the necessary lenses days ago. Weeks ago, in fact. I know, Colonel Humboldt. I know it. Well, then why haven't you? Because, Colonel, I haven't yet received my formula from Dr. Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman? Until he brings it here, there's... Well, simply nothing that I can do. You mean Frederick Bernard Hoffman? Yes. Oh, then heaven help us. Why, oh, why couldn't someone beside that old crackpot have been assigned to develop the formula for this lens system? Don't you know Hoffman, his reputation? Oh, very well. Well, then why pick him of all people? Because, sir, he's the only man we can depend on to do it properly. I don't believe it. As a matter of fact, I've been wondering why you haven't just fed the requirements into one of those electronic brains and let it devise the formula for you. In a matter of seconds. Perhaps, well, days, weeks, months. That was tried, Colonel Humboldt. You know it as well as I do. 
And, sir, with no success whatsoever. But it has been months now for now, literally months, since you promised us this optical system. And what has happened? Absolutely nothing. One of the potentially most important factors in celestial observation from a guided satellite must wait on the whims of a doddering old, old crackpot. Crackpot? Well, isn't he? You think I haven't heard of his silly hobby, his preoccupation with the supernatural? His ridiculous belief in psychic phenomena, his, his conviction that he himself is endowed with supernormal powers. Who knows? When you consider some of the miracles of engineering that Hoffman has made possible, well, perhaps he is. Oh, yes? Well, then why doesn't he send you the formula telepathically instead of holding us up this way? Isn't there anything you can do to hurry him up? Nothing whatsoever. So our entire science program waits for him. Just waits. The entire world waits, Colonel. Including our enemies. Oh, I tell you, it galls me to twiddle my thumbs while this superstitious old man with a single specific piece of knowledge spends his time communing with the spirits. Including our enemies, Colonel. What, sir? Please don't forget that, sir. Because there isn't a country on Earth that wouldn't do almost anything to have this formula. Or to keep us from having it. If he ever completes it. Oh, of course he will. But in the meantime, sir... Well, then why doesn't he? In the meantime, Colonel, I hope you've done as I asked. You mean the guard about that little place of his up in the country? Yes, sir. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We've had two or three men on duty up there 24 hours a day... watching him and his apprentice. Uh, apprentice? <laughs> apprentice what? Do they work on his formula? No, all they do is putter about in his flower gardens and feed the birds. But as soon as he is ready, and it should be sometime today. Today, today you say, no, next month, more likely next year, perhaps two years from now. Do you realize how long it took to develop the famous Delocar lens that first made an efficient bombsite practical? Do you know how long it took Hoffman to develop that? Over three years. Hoffman provided the formula for that? Yes, Oh, I see. Well, I, uh, I didn't know. And at that time, too, we closed his work in utmost secrecy. Kept his little country place under guard. And he worked completely alone on it? The way that he supposedly is working on this? Colonel Humboldt, you may be sure that every waking minute that that magnificent mind of his is working. Uh-huh. He is working on it. Well... But what if something were to happen to him, eh? Well, that is the risk we take. I see. And now, since we may receive word from Hoffman almost any minute, if he keeps his last promise to me... Yes, if, if. I know, I know, no, Colonel. You are no more impatient than I am, sir. It's only that I understand this man, his, his, his odd foibles. In any event, I suggest that we discuss the safeguards that must be taken, the escort that will be necessary to ensure his getting here safely. Yes, 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 by all means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. If a tertiary curvature of 16 degrees from the axis B equals... equals... Uh, equals 1 plus A over E to the nth power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, the cube of cosine R will automatically, automatically compensate for any variation in the flexing of the meniscus. Of course it will. And now, 
using Napierian logarithms to determine the hyperbolic function of the system with the factor V now equal to Y equal to the secant B plus R squared over 1. Of course, of course, of course. Oh, I have it, I have it. Stefan, Stefan, my boy, come in here. Stefan! Uh, yes, Dr. Hoffman. Come here, my boy, come here. Uh, look, look at it. I have it now. It is finished. The formula it is completed. Excellent, doctor. My congratulations. Thank you, my boy. And I deserve them. For this formula, Stefan will forever stand as a monument in the annals of scientific achievement. A monument to me. And Stefan, only I could have done it. Because of my gift of communication with those who have gone before me. Because my powers are above those of normal men. Are super normal. <laughs> so I must memorize it now. The square of the fact of V equal to the secant B plus R over Y. Excuse me, doctor. Uh, uh, what, what, what? You are a copy of the formula now, so I can give it to Dr. Fernald. Ah, I'll give you the formula? Yes, sir, I'll need it now. No, 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 my boy, you do not understand. I will take it to him myself as soon as I have finished memorizing it. Memorizing? Of course, my boy, so that only I will know it. I, I see. But, uh, Dr. Hoffman, I... I... Yeah, yeah, well, well... Well, uh, what if something were to happen to you? <laughs> have no fear, my boy. Nothing will happen to me. Yeah, and the tertiary curvature of 16 degrees from the axis B equal to 1 plus A over E to the ninth power. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have it now, I have it. I get Mr. Fernald on the phone. Yes? Yes, hello? Uh, Dr. Hoffman? Uh, ju just one moment, please. Doctor. Yes, just... Uh, there we are. Uh, now the formula is only in my mind. So now, Stefan, I am ready to talk to Mr. Fernald. The phone, please. Yeah, yes, sir. Here, here, Doctor. Doctor. Fernald? Uh, yes, Dr. Hoffman. You're ready now? You finished it? Yeah, it is finished. Today, as I promised you... I shall bring you the formula for the new optical system. Oh, splendid. Splendid, sir. Now, we're all set up here to begin work on the lenses immediately. Good. Now, you're sure you wouldn't prefer to have one of our men drive you in here? Oh, of course not. I'm not a helpless old lady. I, I shall drive in myself. <laughs> very well, very well, sir. Nonetheless, although you may not know it, Colonel Humboldt has arranged an armed escort for you. They're waiting in some cars outside your home right now. Well, of course I know it. I can see them from the window. Then you realize how anxious we are to give you every protection, sir? Yeah, yeah. Uh, to protect me or the formula? Oh, oh well, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But you are no more anxious than I am, Fernald. For it is I who have spent so many weeks in working it out. Uh, yes. Well, now I suggest you start immediately. As you leave your driveway... The escort will follow you. I shall leave immediately. Splendid, Doctor, splendid. I'll be waiting for you. Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> Armed escorts, he says, yes, provided. I know. I can see them now, Doctor, waiting outside. Do you need them? Of course not. He is an idiot. That will only make suspicion. Instead of protecting me, Stefan, that will only endanger me. 
You think you might be in danger? With hmm? this great secret I now hold, of course I am, my boy. A danger from whom, Doctor? Oh, does it make any difference? But Stefan, my boy, instead of the guard he has sent, I have a better plan. Yes? Yeah, yeah, much better. Only one that shall completely outwit anyone who might try to intercept me on this mission. What is it, Doctor? You will see. Now, first, you fetch my cloak with the hood, the big hood on it. And then? Then you tell Mario, the old gardener, that I wish to speak with him. Do you mind telling me why, Doctor? Now, just wait, my boy. Wait and see. Now go get him, get old Mario, and bring him in here. Very well, sir. You sure you wouldn't like me to drive, Doctor? No, 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 thank you. I shall drive. You sound very happy, Doctor. Well, why not, my boy? I have the formula now in my memory, and we shall have no trouble getting into Fernald in the optical works. In spite of all that armed escort nonsense. That was rather unexpected, wasn't it? Did you not see the guards about the house all the time for all these weeks? More nonsense. More nonsense. But we fooled them now, haven't we? Yes. Yes, we fooled them. Ah, that poor old Mario, all dressed up in my cloak. The top of it pulled down over his face. He looked so much like me, it almost fooled myself. And not one of those silly men with the guns could know it wasn't me. <laughs> and then, when they were gone, by driving away in the open with this old cow, Mario's... You and I, we made no suspicion whatsoever. It was very clever of you, Doctor. <laughs> but not necessary, Stefan. Because no one knows better than I do that there are certain people who would like to prevent me from delivering this formula. You're quite right, Doctor. I'm so glad you thought of this. Yes. Stefan, my boy, there are people who would stop at nothing. At nothing, my boy. You're absolutely right, Doctor. You can see I hold a pistol here in my hand. Oh, unnecessary, my boy, unnecessary. Because everyone thinks we are in my car and far ahead and followed by the guards. No one knows that you and I are here, comfortable, safely. Stefan. Yes, Doctor. Oh, I see. Your pistol, Stefan, is not for my protection. Uh, my loyal apprentice has been one of them. True, Doctor. And in return for your life, you will give me the formula. No, Stefan, of course I won't. You know better. Now put down that gun. I'm sorry, Dr. Hoffman, but there is no choice. Either you tell me the formula, slowly, so I can write it down, or I pull this trigger. I suggest you take the next little turn-off. We can stop there and be undisturbed. Ah, the secrets you must have stolen for them. But this is the important one. Doctor, it's you or the formula. Well? No. Never. I will die before I give it to you. You'll die if you don't. Better stop and tell it to me, Doctor. No, I will not do it. Then there is only one thing I can do. I'll keep you from delivering it. Only one thing, eh? Slow down now and pull into that neck. Only one thing, eh? Doctor, slow down. Slower, Hoffman. That curve ahead. Look out. We're going off the road.
that you're the, the what? The gardener? Yes, sir, Mr. Farnal. Uh, my name is Mario, sir. But why did he send you in his place? What's the matter with Hoffman? Didn't he see the guard that Colonel Humboldt sent up there for him? Didn't he think that we'd protect him adequately? Well, I'm sure I do not know, sir. But where is he? Where is Hoffman? He said that he and his apprentice, young Stefan, would follow along in my car, sir. In your car? To avoid any suspicion, Dr. Hoffman said. Oh. Oh, oh, fine. He was afraid the two cars full of armed men would only attract attention, would only make it uh, dangerous for him. Oh, he did, eh? But where are they now? Where are they? Uh, maybe if uh, uh, Colonel Humboldt sent out some of his men to look for them... The Colonel's men have been backtracking that highway ever since you got here. Oh, my dear, if anything happens to Hoffman... It was very amusing, though, sir. Did you say amusing? What can be amusing about a situation like this? Well, I mean, when I got here, and even Colonel Humboldt himself thought I was Dr. Hoffman. Amusing, eh? Well, let me tell you something, Mario. If... Humboldt, any luck? Have you men found Hoffman yet? No, no, Fernal, no, I'm afraid not. All we know, and that was from a phone call to a neighbor, is that Mario here has told us the truth about Hoffman leaving there in Mario's car. How long will it take your men to get to his house out there? Well, as a matter of fact, Fernal, they've already been there. Oh, they've already been... Oh, excuse me. Surely. Uh, Fernal speaking. Sergeant Granby, Mr. Fernal. Yes, you found him? We found his car. Yes? Completely wrecked, sir. What? It went over a cliff at a curve. Must have gone over to very high speed, sir. Complete wreck. And the doctor? His body was inside of it. Oh. He must have been killed instantly. Uh, I see. Very well, Sergeant. No sign of the assistant, though. The young scientist who worked with him and left with him. Thank you, Sergeant. Well? Well pronounced? An accident. Hoffman is dead. Yeah. Oh, no. And with him, the formula. But I don't understand about his apprentice, Stefan. He's disappeared. His apprentice? Yes. Stefan was with him. He left there with him. What are you trying to do? Why isn't he dead? Of course not. You can't go in there. What is that? What is that story? Don't you understand? I'm Dr. Hoffman. Fernald, what is this? Well, I say you're not Dr. Hoffman. Hoffman? I'm sorry, Mr. Fernald, but this man here insists that he's... Stefan. Who? Stefan, what happened to you? Why do you call me that, Mario? Don't you know me? Your own employer. But you are Stefan. Of course you are. But good heavens, man, you're hurt and badly hurt. Now, what happened? What happened to you? I had to crash the car to save the formula. Must be suffering from shock. He needs a doctor, I think. Wait, Colonel. Here, my boy. Sit down. Here, over here at my desk. Badly bruised and bleeding. Now, now, there. there. Now, Stefan, tell me. You call me that, too. What? What is the matter with you? Don't you know me? I am Hoffman. The doctor. There's no time to lose. Yes. Yes, there is no time. I must give you the formula while I can. You? Paper. Pencil. Quickly while I'm still able. Well, uh, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But how do you know it, Stella? I tell you, I am Hoffman speaking to you. Now, quiet, please. While I still have strength to give the formula. Uh, the giant eyes put tertiary curvature of 18 degrees from the axis B, which is equal to 1 plus A over E to the nth power. 
Yes. This man is out of his mind. That must be gibberish. He thinks he's Hoffman. Don't you see, Humboldt? Don't you see what he's writing? The formula. The Hoffman secret. What? You see how the various factors in it fit together almost miraculously. Look, look. It's... It's as only Hoffman himself could put it down. But uh, it's almost as though Stefan were possessed of... Possessed of Hoffman's spirits. Good heavens, Fernald. You... You mean you really think that such a thing is possible? Well, I know that Hoffman talked about the supernatural. But this... There, there, gentlemen. It's finished. I, I promised I would bring it to you. And I have. Now, look, my boy. Look. Now I must lie down. I... Uh, yeah. He's fainted. No wonder with those injuries. Mario, open that window and fetch some water. No, no, wait, 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 wait. Fernald. Yes. Look. He he seems to be trying to say something more. It, it, it might be important. Well, I see. Because if it's in our But I am sworn never to reveal. Yes, Dr. Hoffman, I will tell I am Stephen Heron, American educated since 16. But my prior rigorous training was as a spy. I have scrupulously avoided contact with my government. Waiting for the right time. The formula for the lens system. Unbelievable. You think so, eh? Wait a minute. Here. Look at this. The empty holster on his hip. And here. Here's a smaller gun right here inside his belt. Oh. And how about he's coming to? Fernand, if Hoffman is dead, it's because this man killed him. Oh, not with his gun, perhaps. It hasn't been fired. Oh, no. Do not shoot me, please. No, shooting would be far too good for you, Stefan Heron. It is Heron, isn't it? Yes, yes. I am Heron. All right. Now, how did you do it? How did you kill him? Uh, no, no, I did not. He tried to kill me. To get the formula. That's why you killed him. I tried. Tried to force him, but he wouldn't tell me. What? He wouldn't tell me. He made the car go faster and faster. And then the curve, and the car went over. No, 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 wait, 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 Stefan. You say he didn't give you the formula? No, no. But I am content. You hear me? I am content. Because you and your country, you don't have it either. He wrecked the car. He's dead. He can't give it to you. Nobody knows it. Wrong, Stefan. What? Because Hoffman has given it to me. He has? Yes. Through you. I... I still can't believe it, Fernald. I know, Colonel. I know exactly how you feel. And that is the reason I talked with the psychic investigator, a man who's an expert about the so-called supernatural. Oh, you did? Well, what, uh, what did he say? Only that there are many cases on record in which an injury, especially one to the head, has resulted in temporary personality control of the sort that we witnessed. 
of Stefan taking on Hoffman's personality. I, uh, I understand such cases are well recognized by the psychologists. Yes, but... But what of Stefan's temporary knowledge of the formula of Hernald? The formula that existed only in the mind of Dr. Hoffman while he was alive. Possibly, this psychic investigator told me, possibly, Colonel, it was a case of thought transference. Yes, thought transference occurring as a result of Hoffman's tremendous concentration on his formula at the moment of his death. But, who knows? What do you think? Suspense. You've been listening to Formula for Death, written especially for Suspense by Jonathan Bundy. Suspense is produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in tonight's story were Walter Griset as Colonel Humboldt, Ivor Francis as Fernald, Herb Duncan as Stefan, Louis Van Ruten as Dr. Hoffman, Guy Rapp as the gardener, also David Kerman and Bob Reddick. This is Stuart Met speaking. Listen again next week when we return with The Lunatic Hour, written by John Robert. Another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense.